Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome back. We're here with the Thought Adventure podcast. We got a special episode for you guys today. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Abdurrahman, and our guest, uh, Dr. Alex Malpass. Um, he is a philosopher interested in metaphysics, philosophy of religion. Most of you guys who watch this are probably relatively uh, familiar with his work and you know his material and interviews online. So today we have him here to discuss a couple different topics, you know, arguments for God, um, theism, atheism, etc. So, but before we get started, I just want to say uh, salam to Abdurrahman and hello to Alex. How are you guys doing? Good, thank you. We're doing well. Good, good, good. So, um, with that being said, I think we'll just kind of jump right into it. Um, actually, I do have one question for Alex, if you wouldn't mind an answering. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what sort of got you initially interested in philosophy and these types of discussions? Um, well, I think I've, what got me into philosophy? Um, so I think I'm like one of those types of people that likes to think about um, abstract things, you know, I've, I think I've always been one of those kids at school who asks the difficult question to the teacher and, you know, like, um, that type of, that type of person, probably both you, you guys are similar, I think. Um, mm. and then <clears throat> my parents had a book, um, on the shelf called the great philosophers, right? It's just kind of standard, uh, book that had chapter on a bunch of different philosophers. And then I can remember reading early on, I guess this is probably my first philosophy book that I read. And chapter one was about Socrates. And um, I just really liked Socrates as a character. He was just like such a cool guy. You know, he was like, he, he just didn't really care about like, I don't know, just some simple like social stuff, like looking cool or like people mm-hmm. thinking he was cool. So I mean, he was just, just fully interested in like talking about ideas. And I don't know, that type of character just had this one authenticity or something about him. It was just like a... Mm like a the philosopher character kind of just jumped out of the pages at me and I, I kind of I just identified with that I think mm-hmm. um you know like um I didn't I only read this years later but um in the symposium um it ends with uh, it's like in a in a what the ancient Greek equivalent of a bar and there's like people drinking and stuff and and um they're talking about the nature of love and it ends with everybody basically being asleep and um, Socrates is still awake and he just sort of gets up and dusts himself down and goes outside into the marketplace and just continues asking people questions which is still after <laughs> everyone's passed out I just really like that character um so I think that's what got me got me into it in the first place but I think at the time I never really thought about philosophy of religion until after I did my PhD and after I left academia because um, I was doing technical work in like logic and metaphysics when I was doing my academic studies and doing writing my thesis and stuff. Um, and it was only after that where I sort of came back really through things like YouTube and stuff where I was like, huh, there's this whole se- second like wind in me or something now where mm. I'm not keen to involve this new area that were new to me, well, religion. It was kind of fun. It wasn't quite so... Um, it wasn't quite so technical and dry as just actual logic can be and some mm-hmm. philosophy of science and that type of thing can it can be really interesting but it can also be quite sort of 
stifling in a way. And there's something quite cool about philosophy of religion. It's really broad and you have to know stuff about like epistemology, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, metaphysics. Like You have to have like a broad knowledge of every area of philosophy mm. really to, to do it. And I think that, that appeals to me. Um, yeah, it's just fun. It's more fun than the other type of philosophy I was doing, I think. Mm. Well, that's interesting. So obviously, based on um, your past and what your engagements are like online and the second wind that you talk about, You've had a lot of experience researching, reading, uh, discussing, debating uh, different things, whether it be theism versus atheism, different arguments for God's existence. With that sort of all of that in mind and, you know, your experience in that, do you think that a theist can be rationally justified in their position? Um. I guess so. I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> there's two ways, the number of ways you could sort of hear that question. I mean, one, so one way might be, do I think it's rational to believe it or something? Do I consider myself to be um, like my own beliefs and the things I take myself to know or whatever, do they point towards that conclusion? Should I believe it based on what I currently take myself mm -hmm. to know? I, I don't think the answer to that is no, right? But... <clears throat> I also think that um, what's rational is kind of like a relation or it's rela is related to the things that you take yourself to believe and know. And it's just, it's just if you know X, Y, and Z, uh, then some other thing might be rational to conclude from that, even if X, Y, and Z, some of those are false or something. It's all about like the inferences that you're making from the set of beliefs to, to the conclusion. So almost anything can be rationally believed on, on that very loose definition I mean, a complete crazy person could believe hamburgers eat people and you know up is down and stuff like that and if they do that then they'll be rational in concluding some also crazy things right so um somewhere between those two there's there's something that's a little bit more reasonable which is like are they good plausible looking uh things that you know not an insane person could believe that would lead mm -hmm. them to that conclusion and i think probably yeah you have to be humble enough to say that right? I, mean, I disagree with other thinkers or whatever who are theists but you have yeah. to be quite um unreasonably bold it seems to me to suppose that all of those people are like suffering from some kind of cognitive defect like you know newton was a theist right obviously not an idiot <laughs> leibniz <laughs> was a theist obviously not an idiot right um leibniz must be more rational than me uh, clearly, I'd be, I'd be super arrogant to suppose that he was in some way less rational than I was. Um, so, so yeah, I think there are just people who are perfectly rational who are, who are theists. Absolutely, yeah. And there's also strong theistic philosophers of religion. Um, you know, people. So, for instance, I'm, I'm friends with um, Josh Rasmussen, obviously mm -hmm. a very intelligent bloke, very very rational person, right? Um, mm -hmm. Uh, but he's a theist, so I, I think that that's that's fine. I mean, there's a, I'm not going to name any names, but there are some other uh, theist philosophers of religion who are kind of crazy Republican supporting um, vaccine denying kind of people. That does stretch my credulity to suppose that they're 100% rational, but 
there's something going on there that, that seems wrong to me. But um, let's not let's not dwell on that thought. Let's, let's pass over that. If I if I can jump in here, I mean, we were going to move on from this, but what you're saying is very interesting right now because, so so I suppose it's like I so so obviously you're a coherentist. I think about like. Um, you describe yourself more as a coherentist than, than a foundationalist, right? So, so that's right. Yeah, that kind of yeah. mold. Yeah, and and uh, so in that sense, you'd say that well, you can be rational and 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 uh, disagree. I, I guess the question yeah. is where where um, where you draw the line because, um, you know, there's there's that whole discussion on on the um, the epistemology of disagreement, right? And and uh, disagreement skepticism, right? So you know, and disagreements between peers. I mean, someone might want to say that, well, so there's so much disagreement on this topic and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Then would the rational position be to withhold judgment? Or or um, or would you take another position and say that, no, I mean, you can be rational despite disagreement, uh, that this kind of disagreement, that's, that's like, you know, persistent disagreement. Yeah, so... I mean, again, it's going to come back to the way exactly you mean by rationality here. And it's not like that's completely a non-controversial thing to, to wonder about. So um, I think it's just kind of obvious that there's some some readings of the word rational where like a kind of something like a kind of Cartesian, that's really strong kind of Cartesian view where everything has to be like deductively based on a priori foundations or something, right? And then I take take it that, although there's disagreement about that, I guess, but I take it that like most philosophers do think that program is not really sustainable anymore. And that it's whatever we're doing, it's not going to be that every uh, question is completely resolvable in that in that kind of ultra-rational sense. And but the question is what what next? Like what happens in the in the wake of that program? Uh, not being viable anymore, what do we do? And there's loads of different answers about that. So there's lots of different conceptions of what, what it means to be rational, as you, as you highlight this kind of disagreement about the epistemology of, of disagreement. <laughs> um, so... Um, and Alex, I, would you say yeah. that pretty much, because I agree with you, that on both sides, the theists and uh, non-theists, atheists, pretty much have abandoned that sort of project that you just mentioned earlier. Right. Yeah, like a, a kind of like really um, ultra rational uh, rationalist kind of program or something. Yeah, I think that's more or less uh, not practiced these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, philosophy comes in kind of waves and there's kind of fashions and stuff like that. Um, everyone was a Wittgensteinian in the like fifties, and then now everybody's an analytic philosopher. And you know, these these things kind of come and go to some extent. But the 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 way things stand right now is. Um, yeah, in, in, epistemology is also a bit of a mess. I mean, there's there's all this stuff about like, you know, uh, in the wake of um, of um, the Gettier kind of stuff that really blew blew epistemology up and made a whole whole load of controversy where previously people hadn't really noticed there was anything to be controversial about. Um, so, I uh, yeah, I mean, look, let's just grow back from all these big ideas. I mean. Um, the question is just like if there's lots of disagreement in a subject like metaphysics or philosophy of religion or something, is it is it is the right thing to do to say just shrug your shoulders and go like, gee, I guess I should, you know, not not take a view on anything. And I just think that like the answer to that is no. But what you have to do is make like um, it's not just black and white views like uh, 
I just think, I just believe the P and, and nothing else about that, no nuance or anything. You believe it like Ill, to, with some weighting or whatever, some like to some degree believing P, not just black and white, but like, um, so give it, you know, even in a context where there's uncertainty, you can still have like a moderate belief because you think that like, you know, some evidence persuades you or like the, on the balance of weighing up a bunch of considerations, including things like theoretical virtues and like, the coherence with other things that you take yourself to believe or whatever that that can provide um some kind of ground that allows you to say yeah with you know with a load of caveats this is my view um and just because someone can say well, aha you might be in the matrix dreaming or something that doesn't necessarily undermine the modest sense of confidence that you gave in the first place i mean it does if you say i'm absolutely 100 percent certain about this like descartes was about whatever right if you're if expressing something as, as strongly as that, then it can be undermined by something as weak as the, the outside chance that you might be in the matrix. But like, no, I, typically if I'm expressing a view in something like metaphysics, it's going to be balanced out, you know, very, very nuanced kind of evaluation of lots of different competing considerations. And it's kind of like on, on balance, this seems to be where the chips lie rather than I'm 100% convinced of this and nothing you say will change my mind, right? Right. Uh, Abdul, your, your mic is muted, brother. You got to. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So the reason I think this is an interesting question, and I, I guess this could be a good segue into like uh, uh, many of the points we, we want to discuss today is that like, so, so what I, what I've seen you do in, in, in a lot of discussions is that it, it seems like disagreement is a big thing, like in the sense that, well, there are different views on like, you know, how we're going to deal with, let's say, Benedetti problems, like in paradoxes and stuff like that. It's not just like causal finitism is the only view. Look at those philosophers saying that. So, I mean, I guess in that sense, right? Well, uh, so at the end of the day, like f for you, I, I don't know if you commit to um, causal finitism, like on this question specifically, but would it just be that intuition that like, you know, I'm going to favor this view over that. And I've, I, th I think like, um, so I don't know if intuition is the right word, but like someone like Graham Oppie, right. With his, um, with his whole PSR about the initial state mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, I've seen you ask him, right. The, why not just accept the infinite regress. Right. I mean, cause he doesn't see anything problematic with it. And he, he just thinks it's more parsimonious, right. He, he just thinks it's a better theory. It's a better, and, and he commits to it. So I guess that's the tricky part for me, like, um, because sometimes to me, and just, 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 this is my perspective on some of these discussions, it feels like the theist needs to do much more than that. Like, it, it feels like it's never going to be enough for me to say, hey, this seems like a more parsimonious theory. It seems like overall, I've got a better picture and I'm committed to this view. Obviously, you won't do this. I'm just saying generally out there, it seems like the, 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 the common approach to that is, well, wait, that's not necessarily the case. So back to the whole like, you know, idea of like whether we need to be deductively sound and certain about things before holding to mm -hmm. them. It seems like the common impression out there is that it's the theist that needs to do that. And the atheist, the agnostic, they can just get away with whatever worldviews they have. So I, I, I don't know what you have to say about that. Well. Um, there's something unusual in the philosophy of religion that's not the case in other areas of philosophy, right, which is this um, notion that, and actually, and this might be something you can explain to me a bit better, but um, 
it seems to me that in Christianity, there's a kind of uh, evangelical aspect to it, which is like, you really are trying to convince people to, to win their souls for Jesus or whatever it is, right? And so that project sets an, a high bar because if, if you're trying to change somebody's mind, you do have to overcome their skepticism. If you're just pr- trying to explain why you are convinced of something, you don't, there's no real requirement to change somebody else's mind. So it depends what you're trying to do, right? Um, and it just seems to me that a lot of the time, there's this background assumption that what the Christian is up to is trying to convert people. That's just not necessarily going to, well, might be the motivation. You might be an evangelical atheist, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, I guess I guess that's motivated. true. I guess I guess that's true in the sense that, well, like in the, like the whole like apologetics project, like right. So I mean, generally speaking, so I, I guess you're right. Like on a societal level, it seems like it's the theist who's trying to pull people on his side, right? But then w- when we come more like towards the intellectual sphere. I mean, it it seems like that's just like transferred, you know, with no reservations in the sense that, well, I mean, I just think this is right. And I'm telling people that I think this is right. That's that's really what what converting people is. I mean, and for the atheist, it, it would really be that, well, I think this is right. And maybe you're not interested in converting people, but maybe you are in the sense that, well, maybe religion is harmful. I don't know. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah. But maybe your worldview doesn't entail that, you know, it's really important for a person to hold a, a certain view. And I, I guess it's quite obvious in the case of theism and non-theism, where there's this, you know, picture of an ultimate judgment and accountability that, well, yeah. okay, in that sense, it would be more important. And I guess for the atheist to, um, I mean, if that were true, then, then well, uh, the atheist, uh, expressing his views and trying to counter the theistic arguments, well, that's going to be a big deal as well, because, well, if if my side of, of, of the, you know, if my, if my worldview is true, then there's serious implications for, like, leaving religion. So I, I guess I guess on both ends, there's, an, there's a significant weight to the claims we're making. But I do get what you're saying in the sense that, well, what it, it does seem like it's the religious people running out there trying to convert people even though these days there does seem to be a bit of a balance with like, uh, you know, what they call new atheism, militant atheism. I mean, it's mm-hmm. dying out a bit, but, uh, but there does seem to be a balance. And, uh, and I guess it depends on what, like <laughs> what region or, or country or point of history you're talking about. Cause like if we talk about China, I think it, some, somebody's a place like China, maybe it would be like reverse in for, in favor of like, um, non-theism that, 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 uh, that you know, theism is looked down upon, and 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 the favored view is is non-theism or atheism, and uh, the reverse would be true. So I don't know. I mean, I get I get your I get the I get the I get the sentiment, but uh, I guess more in the realm of philosophy of religion, it seems like there's still I I do still get that vibe right in these discussions, that you know. So here's my worldview. Here's my like theory of reality. Uh, then. Uh, 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 you know, we could just end it right there, shake hands and go home. <laughs> but, but no, no, you have to prove something to me because you're trying to convert me. But I don't think in, oh. in these in these discussions, it's really about trying to convert each other. Yeah. So, the burden of proof is not something that's fixed. I mean, it can exchange sides in a conversation. I mean, I could start off with you making a claim, and then. Um, a few minutes later, I'm making a claim. Now, burden of proof isn't on me, right? It's the, 
it's not really got anything to do with who I am, what I believe. It's all to do with like what is going on in the dialectic at that point. So an atheist can have the burden of proof. A theist can have the burden of proof. There's really nothing about theism and atheism that hasn't dictates the who has the burden of proof as such. So um, if I'm, a, for instance, I, I might uh, put forward an argument from evil or something, you know, that is on its face trying to establish a conclusion. It might, it might be that God doesn't exist. It might be that it's probable that God doesn't exist, something like that. But, you know, to the extent that I'm making that claim, I'm trying to defend it. I do have to um, meet that burden of proof that comes with it. Um, and it just seems that like by whatever historical contingency or something, theists are out there pushing arguments for their conclusions and atheists typically play the role of the objector. But there's nothing about atheism that means it's an objector rather than someone has a case that they can be held to account for. Um, and you know, so yeah, that, that's that's. I think that's the right. Reason. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally. Agree. So yeah, it, it is context dependent. Obviously, if I'm making an argument for the existence of God, then yeah. So yeah, I, I agree with that. And I guess we could just jump straight into it from here. Uh, and and uh, I mean, maybe we can because I I think the the I think there's going to be more points of agreement on uh, the Kalam cosmological argument if we because because if we start off with the whole uh, uh, infinite regress question. I don't know if you okay. want to start with everything that begins to exist has a cause. That's uh, like, like if you want to start with the causal principle, I think that's going to be like a, a sort of like common discussion between both like the contingency argument and and, and the Kalam cosmological argument. But uh, generally, infinite regress and 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 what I what I told you in our uh, you know, in, in our exchanges is that I do agree with you on some points with with regard to the uh, the critique you make against uh, Craig's uh, you know impossibility of, of an actual infinite by successive addition argument right okay um and and uh i mean i guess it is it is a very like smart uh, <laughs> i think response the whole beginningless counting thing it just sort of shifts the whole um it's almost like you can't get around it in the same like strictly logical sense that you do with her when, when you begin counting right mm -hmm. and, and and it to me it seems like um so i, I Obviously, I, 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 I do believe that the past is not infinite, uh, right? Okay. But I, I guess the, the point is that uh, the structure of the argument, the way the argument is put forward, maybe. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't know if uh, there are probably good responses out there that I, I, I haven't read. But uh, the structure of the argument that, you know, that the successive addition argument, I don't think it shows that impossibility, as far as I understand it, given that uh, critique uh, because it, it it is a bit misleading to begin counting when you're talking about a a, a beginningless past. So I guess yeah, that's that's, right. that's that's the point of that would be the point of agreement there. I think the only um, objection that I find um, like worth considering is the is the whole um, I, I don't know what it's called. I, I looked at it like uh, quite a while ago, but where like it's just arbitrary where you are going to end counting um what was that objection again uh i don't i don't remember who raised it but it's just something like it violates the psr something like that like there's oh, no I see. yeah right, right. There, there's no real reason why you're going to end counting let's say if you're counting down there's no real reason why you're going to you know reach 10 9 8 7 6 now rather than you know any time in the infinite past so uh yeah i guess that's the only one that like i mean there's something there in the sense that it is weird Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, it's weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 
I don't know. Uh, so, so, but that alone, I think, uh, all in all, the, the, it's 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 a it's a good car, uh, counter argument. But um, do you want me to say a little bit about that then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can. So, the um, the argument is put by people like Craig, right? Is that um, uh, I think the, the syllogism. So this is like premise two of the Kalam is the one that says the universe began to exist, right? And um, Craig typically gives like scientific supports for that and philosophical supports. And if we just ignore the scientific ones and think about the philosophical ones, then generally here's two of those. And one is the Hilbert Total argument and the other one is the successive addition argument, right? So we've classified it down to exactly what we're talking about. And then this successive addition argument says something like a collection formed by successive addition cannot be actually infinite. Um, but, and then he's saying the temporal regress of events, like all of the events in the past, is formed by successive addition, like one thing happening after another. Therefore, it cannot be actually infinite. Right? It's just a modus ponens, effectively. It's a very simple little argument. So the question is just, can it, you know, question, I mean, you might question premise two in that is, is the success, is the series of past events formed by successive addition? Let's just park that for the time being. Think about premise one. It, is it true that um, that uh, no series of events or no series formed by successive addition can be actually infinite? Is, is that true? Um, no, it seems to me there's reasons to 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 doubt that. I mean, I, it, the paper that I published last year um, about this, I was arguing that you know if you so you can form a little argument which is like you know it's possible that somebody starts counting now and just doesn't ever stop counting in the broadest sense of being possible right it's you know just assume that they don't die or go mad or anything like that just sort of logically possible at least right that somebody starts counting and just doesn't stop you want to think about an angel counting or something like that then fair enough um but as long as that's possible then you know for each number they're going to count that number like a million are they going to count that yes they are obviously right so for every number it's true at some point that they're going to count that number so there's no there's no stopping point and it would be weird to think that there was a stopping point you know why think that some number n is the last number that, that you can count to so it just seems like for any number n you can count n plus one um but then so so now it just seems like we've established that every single number is one that will be counted by this person and, and but then you just ask, well, how many numbers are there then, such that each one will be counted? And it's just all of them. <laughs> how, and so how many numbers are there? Well, there's infinitely many. I mean, we're talking about natural numbers. There's a specific sense of infinity that we mean there. It's because of aleph, aleph, null, right? It's a sort of bottom level infinite. Um, and, and that's exactly how many numbers there, that this person will count. And it doesn't mean that there's some point at which they have counted all those numbers. It's just saying now, at this point where they start counting, assuming that they never stop then you know, it's just true that they will count each and every one of them, and there's infinitely many of them. So there you go. And then that's my kind of counter example. It just sort of seems like um, it is possible to form uh, an actual infinite by successive addition. But we have to be very careful because you know, I think Craig's trying to say, is it possible that you will have formed an actual infinite by successive addition? And my counter example doesn't really speak to that um, because I'm explicitly saying, it's not true that he will have counted all of them, right? If he starts at t zero, there's no point t in the future where he's finished that task. It doesn't have an end. So it's an endless task. But now think about, well, what about all the moments leading up to this, this point? Um, well, 
one reason for thinking that he couldn't, you know, have completed the count up is just that there isn't a final number, right? There's just no end to it. It's an endless series. So it's just like saying, can you get to the end of something that doesn't have an end? And, and that's why the answer is no, because, you know, can, can you get to the end of the earth? Well, no, because you just keep going round and round and round. There is no end to the earth, right? It's so for the same reason you can't you can't do that either. If it's if it's got no end, you can't get to the end of it. But thinking about a sequence which doesn't have a beginning, but you know, ends today, like somebody who's been counting down forever, um, you know, in the, the natural numbers in reverse order or something. Well, what you can't say about that is it that it's impossible because it doesn't have an end, right? That's because it does have an end, and the end is when he says zero, which maybe, for instance, today or something. So he certainly can't just appeal to exactly the same thing that made us think that you can't finish a count up, um, because you know, that was just that there's no end to it, but a countdown does have an end to it. So obviously that doesn't yeah. follow. But right? if I can add just on that on that point, I mean, I mean, I guess on the first point, because uh, I mean, so so the whole um, there's the whole quantifier shift. Uh, 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 objection so i don't know if because because for me the the second part of the, of the argument is seems much more compelling but but yeah i guess it is true that so that every number each number will be counted yeah that's true but yeah. i just don't think it's relevant to what craig is saying in the sense that uh, well he's saying just he's saying it can't be traversed i guess that's more of like a, a temporal consideration that's not well, included in the maybe or i mean it's not quite clear what traversing really means and traversing you know taken literally means like moving from one point in space to the other right and that takes you some time to do it assuming you don't move infinitely quickly um i other than as an an analogy or kind of like a metaphor or something i'm not really sure what it means to traverse Ass time. assuming assuming presentism right so assuming craig's presentism and like you know mm -hmm. one more moment succeeds another um i mean i i guess you do concede in your paper um uh, I don't know whether it was you or, 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 or um, Morrison, but then the, the the idea that well, it, it is true that it won't be traversed in the sense that you know Elif Nal is never go going to be reached. It doesn't yeah. have an immediate predecessor. So that's right. And, and I guess my my issue here is that like so the fact that each number will be counted isn't really Craig's problem. His problem is about the uh, traversal considering like the, the temporal factor is, is important considering presentism. Well, think about it like this. So, so familiar with Hilbert's hotel as a thought experiment, right? Now, how many rooms are there in Hilbert's hotel? An infinite number of new rooms. Yeah. yeah. Right. But uh, which room has uh, uh, Aleph Null written on the outside of it? Yeah, there's, there's... Right? None of them do, right? Yeah. So it that the sense in which I'm saying you can count to infinity is the same sense in which there's infinitely many rooms in Hilbert's hotel, and it's no objection. To, it just seems like a strange objection to say, "Ah, but you never say Aleph Null in that sequence." That's just like saying, "Ah, but there isn't a room number Aleph Null in Hilbert's hotel." What's that got yeah. to do with it? Right? It doesn't seem. Yeah. Like I really. Care yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but I guess so. The difference here, I think, would be that, like, so, so. So I, I don't see a problem with an infinite number of rooms, ha like if they're just instantly <laughs> instantiated right there. It's like there's no temporal factor where there's going to be a sequence for that that's required for them mm -hmm. to actually actualize from a finite number to an infinite number. I guess in that case, the same would apply. But if you tell me there's there's an infinite set, right? Well, I believe there is an infinite set. I guess the point is, well, can I count through it given certain 
considerations like metaphysics, like like you know, uh, if if I if I if we uh, assume presentism, for example, right, uh, and and assuming that I'm not counting infinitely fast or something, I don't know. So yeah, so yeah. so I I guess given those considerations, I guess that's the more relevant picture to what Craig was describing. So I I, I guess my question is, why didn't you go straight to the second part? Like why even? Oh, like, I why, see. yeah. Well, because um, I'm defending a philosopher that I love called Fred Dretzky, who made this same argument in 1965, and Craig dismisses it with a kind of like a like a, a footnote in his book, um, barely barely a couple of lines to dismiss, and he calls it hopelessly confused or something. And um, it, it isn't hopelessly confused actually. There's a there's what it seems to me perfectly watertight argument underneath that. So it's part of my reason for not moving straight to the counting down stuff is because there's interesting philosophical work here, um, just on the counting up bit. Now, look, I agree with you that, for instance, you can't sort of change a finite count, somehow like traverse, uh, if you like, or, or transition or transcend or something from the finite to the infinite by just counting, like as if you would you know, one day, some some far time in the future, be counting anything other than a finite number. I mean, I don't think that's right. I don't think you can do that. But all I'm saying is that all of those things, which you've said, which I think are perfectly sensible, are completely compatible with the point I'm making. The point I'm making is sort of quite subtle and easy easy to miss, it seems to me. So, I mean, I would recommend, so my paper's called All the Time in the World, which is me trying to make a funny paper name. But um, it's... Um, Actually, I can't even remember if I've posted it, the, the full text. I, I guess I will anyway. Maybe maybe at some point I can send you the, the link and we can put it. In I, I read it, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I read the paper. Um, yeah. yeah, so I guess, I guess um, yeah, because cause I, I, I would just agree that, of course, it's true that each number will be counted. But maybe there's something I'm not seeing. It's just I just don't see the relevance of it considering the other factors that are brought into to, to Craig's, uh, you know, formulation of, of the Kalam, because it does take other things and, and, and keep other things in mind, you know, that, you know, in order for a moment to actualize the previous moment must only the present exists. And I, I guess much mm. more than just the abstract notion that each number will be counted is uh, required. I, I I won't say is required. I, I is required to be satisfactory f for me, but maybe there's something I'm missing. So, I think yeah. that you're caught in the in the gestalt of thinking that for something to um, well, here's one explanation anyway, right? Which is that if you're thinking for it to be true, so, so, so I'm making a claim which sounds wrong. I'm making a claim which sounds like you can count to infinity, and you're saying, hold on a minute, that that can't be right because for that to be the case. You know, on the A theory with, you know, it's kind of actualizing one moment after the other or something, there'd have to be this point at which I have actualized infinitely many counts or something. Starting at one now, some point in the future, I have done it, it's finished. And I, I'm looking back at the action and seeing it as a completed totality or something. And unless that was true, the claim that you can count to infinity must be false. And because it's false that you can look back on the completed count, that just that's why. Right, something about like, yeah, but but again, I, I I agree. You can't get to the end, and I still say that doesn't matter for my point that I'm making. Because, um, just think about it. Like, imagine that the future is like a line that's extending in front of you, like in Donnie Darko or something. Right? This is kind of like space that's that's 
uh, infinite long line, it's just going away, away to the distance. And what I'm saying is not that there's a point somewhere down that line far away where I could look back towards where I currently am and there'd be an infinite distance between those two points. I'm not saying that. All yeah. I'm saying is that start, like, think about it now. Just imagine every single point on that line is like a light that's lit up or something, right? And just how many lights are there that are lit up in front of me? Well, there's infinitely many. Infinitely. And that's true even if I never get to the end of them because there is no end. Right? That, yeah. That's all I'm saying, that there's infinitely many. And if we think about each of those lights as being an event that will happen, then there's infinitely many events that will happen. And if yeah. we assign each one a natural number, and you know, then there's infinitely many natural numbers that I'll count. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And, and the point of the point of agreement, the point of agreement is that they will never have all been counted in the sense that there yeah. isn't a time in the future where yeah, okay. So that that's fine. And uh and I guess Jake, uh, if you want, if you want to come in and say something about this before, uh... yeah, I have a question about this always counting thing. Okay. So maybe you can try to explain to me how you understand the difference between always counting and never beginning. Um, because to me, uh, it's very difficult for me to imagine when you say, "Well, the person was always counting, but he never began." Um, okay, so we're talking about an infinite countdown throughout the past. Well, I'm saying starting from the beginning, but there is no start, right? So he he's always counting. Um, uh, but well, there's two things to keep distinct, right? There's one where I start counting today, and yeah. I go like one, two, three, four, blah blah blah. And there's no end to that sequence, but there is a beginning. Yeah. Then the other the other case is me. I'm going like three, two, one, finished, and you know on. You know, let's suppose that there's no beginning to that. So this exact mirror image of, of the count up. So which one are you talking about at the moment, the count down or the count up? Well, because I, the way I, and maybe I totally missed it, the way I understood you guys talking about, you're talking about somebody who's always been counting. Right? Okay, so that's a countdown then in that case. Because if somebody starts counting now, they haven't all necessarily always been counting. I mean, yeah, I could start counting by now and I, yeah. I haven't always been counting. Yeah, but if he's always been counting, yeah, then... And he didn't start. Yeah. Then <laughs> it's it's a bit difficult for me to understand how he's always been counting if he never started. You see, because he ne he never began to count. Correct. Well, there's some counting down. Remember, so so you know. Yeah, but he's counting down from what? That's the question. Well, he's he's not counting. There's no point where he starts counting. So so you know, it's like if I'm counting up. You can say, well, you're counting up to what? I'm not always counting up to. Okay, let me, let me try to say it a different way to explain what the difficulty to me is. He never began counting, so he's always been counting, and he's counting down, but he's not counting down from a particular number. So yeah. how is he ever at any particular number? Okay. Uh, I guess this is, is, is the question. And here, I guess you're not going to like the explanation, right? But it's going to be something like, I mean, it depends what you, what sort of thing you're asking for. But I mean, you know. Yeah, I'm just trying to, I don't know if I, what I'm saying makes sense, but. <laughs> well, I, I, th I think, um, um, so, so, so I think there's something natural about, about this that you're trying to express, it seems to me. Let me see if this is right, if this catches your worry, right? Which is that, like, you can imagine someone who's counting down all the natural numbers in reverse order. And he's, I mean, just 
by pure luck, it seems like we stumble across him as he's going three, two, one, few, finish. What an infinite task off my back. Now I can get on with my life and do something else. And you say, what have you been up to? And he says, well, I've just spent an infinite amount of time counting backwards through the natural numbers. Um, and then we go around the corner and we find someone else and he's going three, two, one, few, unfinished. And then you might say, well, hold on, now, what explains me you've finished five minutes later than the, the first guy, right? You've both had an infinite amount of time to finish. How come you finished now and he finished uh, a few minutes ago? And, and now the mind starts to boggle because you think you can kind of sense a vertigo. Like there can't really be any kind of reason why one finishes now and the other one finishes um, at some other time. I mean, is that the type of worry that you're trying uh, to It's that? similar, but a step back before that. So I'm not asking why did they finish at a particular time? Let's change the, just modify the thought experiment slightly. If prior to him getting or, or sort of reaching or counting down to zero or up to infinity, what you're saying here, I'm talking about if we stopped that person or walked by and heard him counting at any particular moment, what would the reason be for saying, oh, he's at 500 or he's at Okay. 237 or whatever mm -hmm. it just seems that because there was no starting point and he's never began to count it's hard to imagine why he's at 10 or why he's at 37 or any no any number well so type of thing well some things you, i mean what sort of thing would be satisfying i mean uh, presumably what would be satisfying would be some prior condition that entailed him saying the number that he's saying now and presumably that would be satisfactory but you know, here's, here's an example of something like that. Say he's saying, say he's saying currently on his way, uh, counting down towards zero, and he's at the number 500, right, as we stumble across it. You say, how come he's at 500 and not some other number? Um, well, I might tell you, well, I mean, he always counts one number per, let's say, minute. And uh, two minutes ago, he was on 502. Right now, those things I just told you then kind of entails that he's on 500 right now because it follows logically from the fact that he always counts one number per minute and two minutes ago he's on 502. Therefore, right now he's on 500. So that, that's about as much as I can offer you in terms of like... It's, but it's Alex, if you don't mind me elaborating. Yeah, yeah if you my, don't mind me... Yeah, my go ahead, concern go ahead. is because there's no immediate predecessor to infinity and he's also, he's counting down and he's never started, you can't even, you can't get to the supposed first number it's oh it's, so now it sounds like what you're saying is that he has to start at infinity and what's the next number to count to or something no is but because he can, yeah but because he's not starting mm -hmm. there is no first number so it just seems completely arbitrary to say what number he's ever at i just don't well, see how I mean, at some given time i guess alex if you, don't, if you don't mind me let me just if i can go, just go, go, yeah. clar clarify so so I guess, I mean, this whole series would just be non-metric in the sense that, I mean, why, why could, wouldn't it be easier if, if the, if the thought experiment was more like, so the guy was like always eating cookies or something, right? Because, because then you, the, you're not going to have like an order sequence where it's like, uh, oh, it's 10, 9, 8 now, but it's like, I see a guy, he's eating cookies. Well, hey, when did you start eating cookies? Well, I've always been eating cookies. Well, how many cookies yeah, yeah, yeah. have you eaten? Well, there's an infinite number of cookies. So, but then uh, because so that in that sense, I don't think the ten, nine, eight 
part is very helpful because it seems like the whole thing is going to be non-metric. So really, how is he at 10? And the way you, I think the analogy you gave with like the other counter would 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 assume like a relational view, view of time, right? Um, it doesn't I, assume a relational view of time. It could be on a substantive-less view of time too. Um, because so. if, if it is, then how are we measuring? Because then the distinction is still arbitrary, right? It's like... Um, would they be like on different in different time frames or um or maybe they're in similar time frames but they're counting at different speeds and well the time uh, you know the the time coincides the, the two different time frames match one to one can we just take a step back a minute i think we agree presumably that uh we we could now engage in a countdown from the numbers 10 to to one and we yeah. could orchestrate it such that i'll say 10 then Abdul, you say nine, and then Jake, you say, uh, sorry, I say 10, then Abdul, you say 10, then Jake, you say 10, and then I'll say nine, and then blah, blah, blah. And we just yeah. do this kind of countdown in a sequence yeah. like that. Okay, but there's nothing wrong with that. It's not arbitrary in any sense. It doesn't presuppose non-metric time or anything about philosophy of time, does it? That's perfectly mm. mundane and yeah. humdrum. Now just extend that forever. That's all I'm saying. So I don't really see that it has any bear on any of it. Yeah, but, yeah, but then the t so the, I guess Jake's worry here is that well, the ten isn't really a ten, is it? It's like it's no, just but like, the, it, it the, just... the problem yeah. is because you're working. Your you the example you're giving is from a known number which you're starting at, and then you're yeah. extrapolating it the other way. But you can't do that in the reverse. That's the issue. Well, see, I just don't. I don't see. I, I don't see a contradiction in supposing that. Um, because I mean, look, think about it like this: uh, for any number n, it's possible that I do a countdown from that number to zero, in principle, right? Yeah, but uh, I guess that, that the problem. But then is you're starting at yeah. a number. Yeah, I agree. But let's just see where we where disagreement kicks in. I mean, it just seems that we all agree: for any number n, you could count down from that number, right? Yes. Okay, so there's no. But but before before maybe maybe let me answer that because because uh, okay. Jake Jake says yes I agree too but then I guess the main worry here is that there is no number n yeah the the, the, that... the the problem is there's no number n and the pro second problem is there's no starting both of those are not analogous to the example yeah I mean there is no number n because there is no starting in a sense that okay so the way the way I see it so with the whole the guy's just always been eating cookies and there's no order to it right so it's just a non-metric sequence. And, and, yeah so so the way the way i see it is well i can just arbitrarily pick a point in the infinite series and start counting as in i i, I metricate time from, from from that point onwards and say okay this is 1 bc 2 bc 3 bc but that's just going to be completely arbitrary it's just going to depend on the point i choose it's not going to really be 1 bc or 2 bc or 3 bc really there is no 1 bc or 2 bc or 3 bc did you get well, the, the, the symbols we use are arbitrary, but I mean, there's some fact about what somebody is saying uh, at a given time that's not arbitrary, right? Sorry if I don't really uh, quite... I mean, I can, I can call 1 BC, 7 BC, right? And just like shunt the whole timeline down when I write down my dates or something if I want to. I can be... And you can't really tell me that yeah. there's anything... To, significant yeah exactly what we call yeah but it. i guess uh, so objectively uh, yeah 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 you're right so but i guess objectively in the sense that well objectively there really is no uh, uh, uh you know but it's very different metric. to say that there really is no fact about what a guy is saying at a given point in time and that doesn't seem arbitrary at all like he is saying 10 right now right so, so how is that arbitrary it's not like 
choosing to use a different symbol to denote some point in time mm. it's an event and it either happens or it doesn't and and it just doesn't yeah. seem there's anything wrong with supposing at any given time in the past that anyone is saying any given number and right I, I guess I, i'd understand it better i guess i'd understand it better if you said that he was counting i mean i understand the the, the I'm, I'm on this objection specifically if, if you said he's counting up from just an, a ran, an arbitrary point, like anywhere in the sequence, but then if you say he's counting down and he reached 10 and, and he, and what we mean by that is genuinely he is at that number because of the sequence that he's been through, then, then, I mean, I, I guess I'd share Jake's concern in the sense that, well, it doesn't seem like the sequence is metricated at all. It doesn't seem like it means something to say that it's 10 because at every point in the finite past, an infinite series has already been traversed. So it's it's <laughs> like, uh, uh, I, I don't think it can be metricated. I think, I think okay, it's just... So I think I see what you're saying. So like, if you take, let's just consider all... Uh, if you think of the, the sequence of numbers, right? Having no, let's say, beginning... So it's the natural, the negative numbers, let's say, and it ends with one or zero, however you choose to carve it up. And that's arbitrary, it seems to me, where you end the series. But let's pretend we agree that it's, I don't know, one or something at the hard end, and then it's open in the other direction. And then you ask, well, how many numbers are there in this set that's closed at one end and open in the other? And there's infinitely many. And now let's yeah. take away 17 numbers or something. Right, and just assume that the guy stopped when he got to 17 instead of stopped when he got to one, right? How many numbers has he counted? Oh, the same amount of numbers. Right? He's already counted in the same amount, right? So um, there's something kind of weird about that, right? There's some proper subset of an infinite series can have the same cardinality as the entire series. And that sort of baffles the intuition. Um, but that's I just what yeah, infinite yeah. set so is, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right property that characterizes this type of sense and, and, and while i understand that that sort of thing is very strange i'm not seeing um the basis to say that the whole thing must be somehow arbitrary or or non-metric just based on that type of feature i, I think it's not going to do enough work for you to get to that, to that i mean so i guess for the like for the uh, finitist i mean he's not gonna so the, the, the analogy you just gave it's the it's the the issue is going to be more like um well, i mean it's the same problem I mean, so so we do believe a number line exists, but uh, I guess I guess the issue really is with the sequence, as in is with like a is the, is really what what Craig calls a successive addition, right? Uh, that's the problem. The problem isn't that there is an infinite set, so there can be an just like like in Hilbert's hotel, there are infinite number of rooms. It doesn't have to be a sequence where one pops into existence after the other. So there is an infinite set, whatever that means. It's limitless. And and uh, and that's okay. Uh, I guess the arbitrariness isn't in the fact that an infinite set exists. It's in the f it's it's more in the fact that there is uh, a sequence that has any kind of meaningful metric to it, where uh, you know there is no beginning. So <laughs> I don't know if I expressed that well, but like so so if, if if there is no beginning, it, it just seems like th like that's the point that's arbitrary, not the fact of infinity itself, just really the state, the temporal state <laughs> a person is in if he's been beginninglessly doing something. I guess that's, that's yeah. Let, let me just say one thing, guys. Uh, just in the interest of time, I think um, 
Alex, we'll give you the last word on that, and then we might want to move on to uh, causal phenotism because I know that you, okay. I think I think you have a slightly different take on that, and so maybe you can say your last piece on that, and then comment on your thoughts on causal phenotism. Okay, um, so well, I think it was a. Um, I guess I'm still not really seeing what the worry is. So there's this idea that it wouldn't be like. Met metric or something it seems to me what it means to be metric is just that it can be um uh partitioned in a, in a, in a way that makes it um coincide with the number series that's basically all that it means right so you can, you can imagine imposing a grid on it or something that's that's numerical and i'm not really seeing why having no beginning means that you can't do that because it so if you just cast your mind back to kind of uh um, high school geometry or whatever, and you have a kind of Cartesian axis. It's got a zero, you know, it's X and Y axis. And the zero point is in the middle, um, but it goes negatively back. Uh, in, in a minus X goes off towards the, the left-hand side. Plus X goes off towards the right-hand side. So what? It doesn't. You know, both of them are as equally as metric as the other. And it's, it, it just seems like I, I'm not really seeing why. Oh well, it's not really metric if it doesn't have a beginning. Maybe I'm not understanding the objections still, but if there's something more to it, I guess I'll have to wait um, for another day to hear. And maybe you can explain it to me. Um, I don't know another time, uh, but I, I don't see the worry that you've got at this point. So it's difficult to sort of yeah, sure, no problem. So, so I guess we can talk more about it yeah. another day. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so sure. I, I guess maybe I can I can message you about that when when sure. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe I can order my thoughts better. So causal phenotism, I guess. If it, Jake, you wanted to go there. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead. Just because I I understand he he's not going to say the exact same thing that won't, as when we were talking about the infinite there. So um, yeah, what are your thoughts on on causal phenotism? Um. Okay, so causal finitism is a view that every causal chain has a first cause to it, like a original first point. So it's, you know, obviously quite relevantly similar uh, doctrine to what we were just considering a moment ago, which is that time has a beginning. Now we're just talking, you know, it depends whether you think this is more specific or more general, but we're saying causal finitism is a thesis that every causal sequence has a first cause to it. Um, and I mean, generally speaking, I, I, I just don't really know whether causal finitism is true or not. Maybe it's true. Um, it doesn't necessarily entail that time has a beginning, even if causal finitism is true. Um, for various different counterexamples to this, but I mean, you can imagine overlapping but independent causal sequences, right? Like, let's say we're both flipping coins or something, but you only start when I flipped five coins. I stop flipping after 10, you know, our sequences overlap with each other. Um, but let's just suppose we've been doing that forever. Well, the cause of finitism is still true, even though um, there's no beginning to that whole story, just because each sequence has a, has a, like a beginning to it. So it's, in some respects, it's kind of modest claim. Um, so, I mean, do, I you, do you lean one it. way or another on the question of causal finitism? I mean, yeah, okay. So, I guess if I lean in terms of like a broad sense of where I lean, I don't really have any problem at all with. Uh, well, I think my dog is Wilma. Come on, get out. Sorry. Um, I don't really have any problem with causal finitism. Um, 
Sorry, give me one second. It's okay, it's okay, no problem. Yeah. Take your time. Okay, cool, cool, cool. She has now uh, left the room, so that's more helpful now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess my view really is that, um, you know, it's, it's a very soft view, is that it does seem to me like less problematic to suppose that, like with Aristotle, that time just doesn't have a beginning to it. It's eternal in both the past and the future. The cosmos is just always there. And if that's right, then though causal finitism might be true, it'd only be true in a kind in the sort of way I was talking about a moment ago. It wouldn't be true in the in interesting way that it's sort of used by theists. So it's primarily defended by people like Alex Proust, Rob Coons, um, Jacob Rasmus, and uh, and Lorania Luna, and so some other people right who who argue for the finitude of the past based on causal finitism. And they're normally doing so based on some version of this like Grim Reaper paradox or Benedetti paradox. And that's where I really have a sort of stronger disagreement. I mean, the, the idea is like you can sort of learn uh, from reflections on the Grim Reaper paradox that causal finitism must be true, that like the best explanation of the impossibility that's going on in the Grim Reaper paradox is to suppose that causal finitism is true and that just seems wrong to me i think that there's uh, a better candidate explanation of what's going on in those grim reaper paradoxes that doesn't involve the supposition causal finitism is true but that's not to say the causal finitism isn't true it might be true but it's just a kind of like what should what's like the best way of evaluating the situation you have to kind of do this um you have to make your own mind up, right? Balancing out what what the considerations are, and it seems to me that um, there are various arguments you can make about, like the so so this kind of general alchemist idea about you want to, you know, trade off the explanatory like power of a hypothesis against its ontological commitments, right? So if you're going to posit that something exists, like universals or something like this then that's an acceptable addition to your ontology if it does enough work for you theoretically speaking to sort of earn its keep it's kind of very widespread idea in, in metaphysics and i think that on that kind of evaluation that the causal finitist um idea is a is quite a strong metaphysical assumption and um it, while it does kill off the kind of weird things that are going on in these paradoxes, you can kill them off without making that ontological assumption. And that means that like, to do so is just to pay an ontological cost to get an explanatory payout that you can just get without making the ontological cost. And, and as such, so Occam's razor would lean towards you taking the, the ontologically lighter solution, everything else being equal. And I think that everything the... else basically is equal, frankly. Which is the unsatisfiable pair. That's right. right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and uh, so again, about costs, right? So, so for the unsatisfiable pair, so, so you wouldn't like reject the patchwork principle, right? Where, um, I mean, cause that's, I think, uh, and well, maybe if you want to explain very briefly what that is for the audience and, and, and how that relates to this, to, to this specific question. I'm happy to explain absolutely any of any of this because it's not um, none of this is, is easy or obvious. But um, would yeah. you like me to explain the unsatisfiable pair diagnosis or the 
patchwork. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, like, basically, the patchwork principle consideration or objection, the the, the objection that comes from there to your mm -hmm. uh, solution. But I'm saying uh, maybe you could start off by. I mean, I guess it's going to come in the middle of the explanation, and 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 the people will understand what the principle is. So, yeah. Yeah. So the patchwork principle is um is kind of very familiar sort of idea that could could occur to anybody really, and probably has occurred in throughout the history of philosophy to different people in different ways. But it, it's often associated with someone like David Hume or the kind of other favorite David of the atheist, I mean, David Lewis. Um, uh, as uh, this idea that like a a anything can exist with anything else. That's basically the kind of most simple way of saying it, right? Like if you think it's possible that there could be like a frog and you think it's possible that there could be a cat, then it'd be an unacceptable kind of thing to think that there couldn't be both a frog and a cat, right? Now, obviously there are exceptions to this type of thing. Um, but you know, you, it seems like it's not that difficult to just straighten those out. Like things that don't literally overlap in space and time, right? That, that a frog over here and a cat over there, right? It, they don't interfere with each other, they don't have any effect on each other. If one's possible and the other one's possible, then presumably both of them together is, is also possible. And there's something quite intuitive about that idea, right? It just, it just sort of seems right. And Lewis um, describes this when he's talking about like the plentitude of possible worlds. Because David Lewis is a kind of, possible worlds metaphysician from um, from the second half of the 20th century, one of the most influential analytic philosophers. Um, and a great read as well. I mean, <laughs> everyone should read a bit of David Lewis at some point. Um, and I, yeah, okay, so that, that kind of sounds plausible because it's, it sort of seems like to deny it, you have to postulate that there are some kind of weird holes or lacunae uh, in, in the in modal space where you just can't have these things combined together for some reason. Um, okay, so it's interesting to, to realize though that like Lewis and Hume, the reason that this is associated with them is also because it goes to their kind of um, wider metaphysical view, which is, I mean, broadly speaking, it's like a kind of, um, they're saying like, that what it means to be, um, what's the easiest way to explain this? That um, So it's been a while since I tried to explain this to anyone. So, um, what they want to say yeah. is that like, all, all that it is, so, uh, yeah, basically, it's basically the way to put it is that the simplest way to put this is just that they're advocating this idea that basically to conceive of something is effectively all that it means for it to be metaphysically possible. And it's certainly the case that you can conceive of both of those things if you can conceive of each of them individually. And that's, it seems to be one extreme end of the options that you could take on what it means for something to be metaphysically possible, which is just, if you can conceive of it, then it's metaphysically possible, like that's it. Um, so the rejection of that patchwork principle actually means the rejection of what's quite an extreme view on what it means to be metaphysically possible. It is quite reasonable and perfectly, I would argue perfectly reasonable to deny that. And so the patchwork principle is appealed to explicitly by Rob Coons, who's a Christian theist who advances this grim reaper argument and 
endorses causal phenotism, and he doesn't believe in the patriarch principle, right? At least he restricts the patriarch principle. Similar with um, Alex, Alex Proust too. He's he's not um, one of these Lewisians about modality. He he has a book on metaphysical modality, and the largest section in there is him critiquing David Lewis. Right? He, he, so he's not a patriarch principle guy either. Um, the question is, should I be a patriarch principle guy? And I actually just prefer a different metaphysical, a different theory of metaphysical modality. So I'm broadly speaking, kind of Aristotelian about metaphysical modality, which means something like um, that claims about possibility, like things being possible are grounded in the powers of things that exist. So like, is it possible um, for me to, I don't know, speak French to someone tomorrow? I mean, it kind of is, but only because like, I've got the ability to learn at least a sentence of French by tomorrow, right? And that capacity that I've got is what grounds that as being true. So any story about what's possible, like just is P possible or something, it's kind of really abstract sense, has to ground out in statements, claims about like the powers that things that actually exist have. So it's more of a like... Yeah, sorry. So, so you it's like you restrict it to like a nomological. You wouldn't. So you, it's more of a, like a nomological modality. That's the one you're concerned with, uh, like in the metaphysical discussion, right? Uh, apart from the the logical one, and uh, sure. And okay. and in it's that sense, so yeah. yeah. So 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 like like Coons with with the patchwork principle. I, so I don't think he rejects it. He does he does restrict it, right? I mean, I guess. Um, and, and you'd be more familiar with this than I am, but I think he restricts it in the sense that, well, he says he restricts it in a way that, uh, you know, the restrictions can't be just arbitrary, I guess. I, 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 I guess that's the way he put it, that there must be a principled way to rule out sure. some yeah, of these yeah, scenarios. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah, it has to be a principled way of doing it. And I mean, there's not being any doubt about it. One of the ways he restricts it is by saying the cause of feminism is true, because that is a restriction on the patchwork yeah. principle. I mean, not everything can exist with everything else because, um, you know, I can think of uh, a cause, I can think of another cause, I can think of another cause, but I can't just do that infinitely many times because otherwise I've got, you know, causal finitism is false. So if causal finitism is true, then there are things that I can conceive of that, you know, the patchwork principle should say that are possible, but they're not possible, right? Because causal finitism yeah. is true. So he restricts it at least in that respect. Um, but he's also saying, you know, you can't just say, oh, I don't like this argument, so I'm going to restrict the patchwork principle you know, for no other reason than that. That would be completely ad hoc. Yeah. But being yeah. an Aristotelian about it isn't to introduce an ad hoc uh, restriction because I'm independently forming a theory of metaphysical modality, which actually isn't very far away from his real views when you, when you look in detail. Yeah. I mean, all these guys are quite sympathetic to it's kind of the vogue view on metaphysical modality these days. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this is where, like, because. Because I, I I mentioned to you right that that um, the whole that that uh, the idea of you being very skeptical about metaphysical modality right and and yeah. uh, and I think that is something that's common amongst philosophers in the sense that well it isn't as well defined as the other like uh, uh, modal classes right yeah but um uh so maybe this can clear up the confusion for me right so so so. I think by metaphysical modality, what what your 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 Aristotelian view would more or less be about like nomological considerations, right? And that would be it: the powers of things, the laws of nature, uh, stuff like that, right? And and in that sense, I I'd wonder why uh, 
like the whole uh, 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 Grim Reaper scenario wouldn't be a concern because it does seem like, well, it is possible. Um, and this is where we might be equivocating on the word possible, but it does seem like it is possible for, you know, the Grim Reaper, uh, a Grim Reaper to exist and, you know, do whatever he needs to do in, in, in the proposed paradox. And it, you, you do seem to have a framework for that in an infinite past. I'm guessing. So, why it isn't possible, I think, would be um... okay. So, here's one way of explaining this. Hopefully, it's somewhat clear. But a consequence of the Aristotelian view, when I mean, you're grounding the modal claims in the powers or dispositions of things that exist, is that um, you know, at, at a given point in time, like say today, the um, every thing that's possible is a continuation of what's actually true right now so it's like you can think of it as branches like the future is like a load of branches that, that come away and the, the present is like the topmost part of the trunk of the tree underneath it before it starts branching right um so everything that's possible overlaps with what's actual now and of course if you rewind time you'll find that like yesterday there were a load of branching points or something that that branched away from yesterday when that was present instead. But in general, a kind of global thing you say is that um, every possible world overlaps with every other possible world at some point in time. So there's no like completely disconnected possible worlds that don't overlap like with the actual world at some point in time. Um, so that's, that's just a consequence of this Aristotelian view, a welcome consequence in my view, it seems perfectly reasonable. Um, but now imagine there's no beginning to time and imagine that, uh, that, that in the actual world, uh, there aren't any Grim Reapers at all, right? Because, I mean, the thing about the Grim Reaper scenario is there's a contradiction uh, involved in it. So obviously that's not the case, assuming contradictions are impossible. In the actual world, even if it's beginningless, um, it, it doesn't, doesn't have a contradictory state of affairs to it. The, the claim is just if the past were beginningless, then the Grim Reaper scenario where it is contradictory would be possible. And that's the claim. And, that, and then you say, well, Grim Reaper scenario is impossible. So therefore, anything that entails that it's possible must itself be impossible. And that's basically the argument that's telling you time has a beginning. But, you know, here's, here's my, my sort of response. So imagine in the actual world, there's no, there's no beginning. And I don't know, every day in the past is just filled with somebody eating cookies or something instead of Grim Reapers doing, waiting to kill Fred or whatever. Um, now, ask yourself, is the scenario where every day in the past there had been Grim Reapers instead of somebody just eating cookies, is that possible in the Aristotelian sense that I was talking about a moment ago? And the answer is, well, no, because on the Aristotelian view that I was describing, every possible world overlaps with the actual world at some point in time, right? But if we're trying to imagine the entire past having been different, that's like saying, a possible world that doesn't overlap any point in time with the actual world. It's like entirely distinct from the actual world. And it just sort of falls out of my theory then that assuming that the actual world isn't in fact full of Grim Reapers, that it's also not possible, not metaphysically possible. It's conceivable, it's kind of, well, yeah, it's conceivable in a very broad sense, but it's not metaphysically possible. And it's also not logically yeah. possible because it's yeah. contradictory. So, you know. So, so yeah, so you're, over. so. <laughs> Yeah. So I guess the, 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 the crucial point here is, is that this, this, this solution 
heavily relies on on your rejection of 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 uh, you know the idea of conceivability in like you know in in, in forming these mortal. Uh, well, yeah, things, I'm right? I'm fudging two things together here because um, none of what I just said has anything to do with the unsatisfiable pair diagnosis. I'm just saying that actually, independently speaking, because I like Aristotelian metaphysical modality, it's not a problem for me anyway. Um, let's pretend I did. Uh, I wasn't just a, you know, an Aristotelian. Then I would start explaining things in terms of, well, the unsatisfiable pair is, is just another hypothesis. So, so I didn't want to confuse those two things together. They're just two different. Yeah. Ways yeah. So, them. so I guess if conceivability was significant for you, or if it's significant for 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 someone, then yeah. um, then it, it's really about about which solution is better. In the sense that, well. Uh, I mean, I guess for me, for me, I, I, I just don't see why it wouldn't be possible in, in, in a broad sense. Uh, so, so I guess for not for an Aristotelian, so, so your Aristotelian view, I get that. And, okay. and I, I get that, it, you know, it, it, um, and I, and I think this might be related again to, to, to when we get into the discussion about more like the, the contingency, uh, argument and PSRs, because, um, I guess the Aristotelian view is going to have a say in that in terms of beginnings, I guess, or in terms of like explanations. But I mean, okay, we can we can get there later. But then the Aristotelian consideration aside, uh, I think if we include, if we take seriously the idea of conceivability, then 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 for me, I think the um, the finitist uh, solution is better because, um, well, first of all, it, it just uh, solves it once and for all and the idea of commitments okay. well i think the commitment i think there will be a commitment on both sides but it's difficult to say for me like so i think the 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 what's less committing on the on the on the other side of the like the the unsatisfiable pair is that it's just like an agnostic stance in the sense that well it doesn't have to be the infinite it could just could be that this uh, uh you know this pair is it just causes this problem and this and 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 this just couldn't happen, but but I think that that's also a, a commitment uh, because I, I don't think it's as straightforward for me as saying you know it's it's a square circle so it's, there's not much of a commitment there in saying you know you can't instantiate a square circle in the world <laughs> I think the 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 uh, the Benedetti paradoxes are just I think they're they're saying a lot more than just a mere square circle being in reality. It's just not as straightforward as me just rejecting a contradiction, I guess. Okay, so so the thing that decisively convinced me that, that, that it is basically just the same as, or even more stark uh, contradiction than a square circle, um, was a paper by this philosopher called Nicholas Shackle, um, who, who lays out the unsatisfiable pair diagnosis. Um, it's really where the term comes from, actually. It's a paper by him in 2005, and it's called the, I think it's called the logical form of the Bernadetti paradox. Um, and uh, what you have to think about is that, that obviously there are expressions of the paradox that involve things like causation and time and blah, blah, blah. And it's easy to think that what's going on there is something about causation and time, like that's intrinsically related to, to the paradox. But but now consider Yablo's paradox, right? So Stephen Yablo has this paper in 1991. I can't, I can't remember exactly what it's called off the top of my head, but um, 
what he's interested in is sort of the liar paradox, but trying to express it in a form that doesn't involve circularity. So he's, as far as I know, doesn't know about the Benedetti paradox when he writes this paper. It's nothing to do with it. He's just trying to investigate the liar paradox, just as a logician, just doing doing some work in philosophy, right? And he's thinking, well, maybe I can exp express the liar paradox. It doesn't involve circularity because there's a whole bunch of the literature which is blaming circularity, and maybe maybe I can just sort of get around that and progress the dialectic in this way. So he cooks up a version of this paradox, and um, it's. I think the easiest way to say it is you just imagine a sequence of numbers, right? The natural numbers, and just suppose we so that starts at one and it's open in the other direction, right? It's just infinitely many of them, no highest natural number. And you just suppose that, um, or, or a sequence of propositions, which each one has a natural number assigned to it, right? So P1, P2, P3, whatever. And then you say each proposition is such that it's true if and only if none of the uh, higher numbered propositions are true, right? And and now you've got a paradox in place because it's, well, it's effectively, it's just the Grim Reaper paradox because, um, so, I mean, do I have to go through the... Do you want no, to no, it's fine. I, I get, you you I, can I, see, right? So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. the same. But yeah. now, obviously, there's nothing to do with causation, you know, something being true if and only if none of the other things are true. That's not causation. And it's nothing to do with time. Otherwise, it's, it's just completely independent from that. And what Shackle's point was really is that you can abstract even further out from that to just this pair, where it's a schematic pair. You just suppose there's some structure that's open in one direction and closed in the other. That could be set a set of elements, or it could be Grim Reapers lined up in a line, or, or anything. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Something instantiates some of this kind of structure. That's part one. And then the second part is just then you suppose that there's some, uh, some property which holds on each element in the structure, if and only if it doesn't hold on any of the ones, you know, further towards the open-ended part of that structure. Yeah. Right? And, that, and then all he's saying is nothing instantiates both of those because there's a logical contradiction that you can derive without ever having to interpret it as something causal or anything concrete or anything like that. So the contradiction is entirely formal. And that just means that it's a, it's a logical contradiction. It doesn't need to be interpreted in a, as anything specifically realistic. And then, and then that already makes it seem suspicious that you have to, you know, solve this by positing something yeah. physical, right? Because it's, you know, I don't have to wave away, like, why is it that you can't have a square circle? It's just because you've contradicted yourself by saying square and circle. It's not because the universe is such that, you know, whatever. Uh, it, it, it would be you couldn't have a square circle whatever existed or whatever doesn't exist, yeah yeah independent of what exists so yeah i mean obviously it's a contradiction i guess maybe 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 you misunderstood me because yes of course it is a contradiction i guess what i was saying was that you know it, it so so in the case of the grim reaper paradox what, what i what i would expect and and like maybe coons's version of it the, the temporal mm -hmm. one what 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 i uh, or the infinite past one what i would expect is for that to be possible and so I, I guess, obviously, my expectations don't matter. But the point is that uh, uh, given I do have the framework, is it's just hard for me to say uh, that, you know, well, um, that's just, it's just not possible. And it, 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 there doesn't seem to be anything straightforwardly clear about why you can't place an agent at every moment of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, so now what we're doing is you're saying, 
I can imagine a possible world with a Grim Reaper in it, like on his own. And I can imagine yeah. another possible world with a Grim Reaper in it on his own too. And blah, 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 an infinite number of possible worlds, each of which has one Grim Reaper in it. And then you just think, well, I'll appeal to some like patchwork principle and I'll just cut and paste each of those and paste them into a world together. And that should be possible. If each of them is independently possible, then, you know, their conjunction together is, is possible. The patchwork principle tells me that that's the case. And I'm pushing back saying, well, hold on a sec. If they are all together and they all instantiated that structure and the property that I was talking about a moment ago, then we've contradicted ourselves. So something must have gone wrong. And what you're saying is, yeah, what's gone wrong is we imagined that there could be an endless or beginning of sequence, right? A causal chain with no first cause in it. But all I'm, I'm saying, well, uh, you don't need to say anything like that because um, it's just a logical contradiction. Now, now, I think you're you're saying, well, but I can imagine them. Like, how have I gone wrong? Yeah. Here? Where did where did where did I go wrong in my chain of reasoning? Well, precisely the point that goes wrong is you applied the patchwork principle. <laughs> the patchwork principle is an okay guide to what's possible, but this shows you that it's not a reliable guide. I mean, you're assuming that you can apply the patchwork principle um, in this case, but it's not an ad hoc restriction on the patchwork principle to say you can't combine two things together or say infinitely many things together when the out outcome of that is a contradiction. Contradiction, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I mean, it needs to be restricted. So I agree it's not, yeah. and, and, I, and I get what you're saying, but I, what I, what, what I'm saying is that it's more like analogous to me that like, so if I have a basket and it's like finitely large, right? You could just take like, so let's say you could take a hundred balls, like you throw a hundred balls in it. That's just normal. Obviously nothing surprising there. If I have an infinitely large basket and you tell me and with, 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 let's say infinitely many spaces, you know, in, enough for, 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 for an infinite number of balls. And then you tell me I can't, put an infinite number of balls in there. I guess that's where, I know there's the other part of, of the paradox, but I guess that's where it's just, uh, uh, for me, it's just, it seems like a lot of problems come in when we uh, uh, bring infinities into the picture. Okay. And, and you, yeah, you, yeah. you might just want to uh, say that, of yeah. course, like, well, hey, that's the nature of infinity. And, and you say that about, um, about Hilbert's hotel, like, yeah, okay, there's something spooky about it. Well, I mean, uh, it's not supposed to satisfy your intuitions. But, uh, but um, I guess I would just, say that I, I i don't see why uh my 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 intuition about what should be expected in a certain scenario sh like should legitimately play a role in my determining which uh, uh, you know solution i take uh, fallibilistically of course right so it, it is defeasible oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. in the sense that yeah, so it's so so. I guess that's 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 basically what I'm, what I'm what I'm trying to say. So you come to the situation thinking, uh, well, having an expectation, right, that it would be possible, and you're finding that it's uh, at least I'm suggesting that that intuition is being thwarted when you actually look at the details of it because you discover that there's a contradiction involved. So something must have gone wrong there. Um, so your intuition is definitely gone wrong. Now it's gone wrong because causal finitism is true, or it's gone wrong because what I was suggesting is just uh, an unsatisfiable pair and you contradicted yourself without realizing like you tied your shoelaces together and didn't notice and tried to take a step forwards or something um, but one way or the other the intuition has gone wrong so I mean yeah that's that doesn't tell on it it's not like your intuition is preserved on cause of finitism either because that's telling you you can't actually have 
all of those grim reapers together because causal finitism is true <laughs> so you know you, your intuition was well i can just look and paste cut and paste them together and that, that goes regardless of whether i'm right or whether the causal finitists are right so it's just to be clear that you know you can't hang on to that intuition regardless of who's right here uh so, yeah okay yeah, yeah that's <laughs> I, see, I see i see i see what you said there but then i guess i mean i don't have the intuition in the first place of like you know um let's say like an infinite past. So I, I guess just working in terms of like, if there was, I mean, then it should be conceivable. Then, then, and, and the patchwork principle is not really about uh, how, uh, you know, I guess it's not, it's not, it doesn't, it's not necessarily about, uh, uh, you know, uh, having to, to, to actually find it intuitive that there does exist an infinite framework for me yeah. to fill. It's more about that. Well, if there are two situations, they're both possible. There's no explicit contradiction. Uh, then, well, they should be possible. Now you're saying that results in a contradiction, but I'm yeah. saying that contradiction uh, basically comes from the idea of the infinity because I like I gave the basket analogy, and it, it seems straightforwardly right. just intuitive to me that you know, well, well, there can't be an infinite basket. So uh, because of this uh, problem, yeah. Sure. So, uh, I mean, is it helpful to talk about the bridges with Königsberg example? Is it... Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, and and I, I guess with that, okay. Yeah, you can, you can go ahead and explain it first. Well, so this is well-known sort of mathematical or geometrical puzzle about like, you know, Königsberg has seven bridges across the, the one river, snakes around it. Anyway, whatever. Seven bridges of Königsberg. And the idea is, is you know, can you cross each bridge once without doubling back on yourself and, and have finished crossing all of them? And um, it was a kind of a, a practical puzzle for a while where people were trying to do it. And, um, you know, Euler, who's a genius mathematician from the 18th century, 18th century, yeah, um, proved it in one of his earlier kind of significant results that you can't do it, right? And then sort of leads to this idea of an Eulerian circuit and blah, blah, blah. But effectively, if there were eight bridges there, you could. If there were six bridges there, you could. But it's, there being seven means it's a non-Eulerian circuit. And now, you know, you can go through the details of his proof to, to, to figure that out, but it, it wasn't intuitive. In the first place, people were actually doing it to see if they could, you know, succeed in this task. And, and you might not know, and, and someone like dares you or something, and you, you could waste a day trying to do it. But I could sort of just prove to you that you couldn't do it. And then, you know, to hell with your intuitions, uh, now you just have to accept that as long as you understand the proof that it that it's yeah. not doable anymore. And no one needs to posit any kind of metaphysical facts about the world or anything. Um, it's not, you know, you, you have to be pretty bizarre to think that, you know, I'm saying that maths stops you from finishing yeah. a, a walk or something. I'm not saying anything like that. It's just, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to do this with a simple fact of geometry effectively at the end of the day. And what's going on with this, is very similar. You, you're just not going to be able to get consistency on the one hand and all of those Grim Reapers doing that exact thing because they are, in fact, logically inconsistent. That, that's a, a sort of conjunction of propositions yeah. that do, um, uh, th that are inconsistent with each other in exactly the same way as if you said uh, that, you know, Bridget has managed to complete her task of walking across all of the bridges. Like, no, she hasn't. Yeah, yeah. You've predicted yourself, but even if you don't realize it. So I guess with the with, so with the Bridget example, I mean obviously. So so if I just have the intuition that I can do it, that will turns out just the fact that I can't. Then then, yeah. then you're right. Uh, 
who cares about the intuition, but, uh, but where, how would it be analogous here? Like in the sense that, so where are the two possible, you know, situations that we would think like, according to the patchwork principle that we can, they can be instantiated in, 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 in a possible world. Um, well, I mean, I can, I can imagine a scenario where there are six bridges across Königsberg's river, whatever the river's called, you should know this. Um, yeah. And now, you know, patchwork principle, cut and paste, I don't know, 100 bricks out of each bridge, right, and paste them together into a, a new bridge. So that now there are seven bridges. Um, I can do that, but it doesn't mean that, you know, everything else is preserved. Uh, it, it, it just stops being true that you can cross all of those bridges um, without doubling back on yourself, right? Just a simple application of the patchwork principle yeah, but made something now logically impossible, and it's the same thing here. Yeah, yeah, but but this, that's given certain conditions, right? Certain like geometrical conditions yeah, and restraints. Right. Yeah. It's not just the fact that I'm passing over bridges and I just added a bridge, like I could pass over that one too. But I, I guess, well, in the case, what what isn't analogous here it seems to me that well, here I'm just saying that the Grim Reaper has a task and that there is an infinite, you know, platform. Mm -hmm. And then I just combine the two with no further uh, restrictions in the sense that uh, uh, it, it should be possible for each Grim Reaper to do his task and, and, and it yeah, should yeah. be possible. Yeah. And it's just not possible for all of them to do it. Right. And that, that sounds yeah. weird, but it's not a law of any modal logic that uh, possibly P, uh, possibly Q, Therefore, possibly P and possibly Q. That's not a theorem in any yeah. sense. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Of I mean, course, it's a, you know, very naive application of Patrick principles is obviously wrong. There. And it's only these like really esoteric ones where you know I'm supposed to think that there's an infinitary Patrick principle. Blah, blah, blah. Just no. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, I guess so, so just you... carve it off at that point and just no. That's yeah. it, just that's what's wrong, right? And now yeah. I'm not paying any ontological cost. I explain all of the paradoxes the same way. Uh, Occam's razor suggests this is a better, better solution, right? I mean, uh, anyway, like I said, yeah, in, I mean, I mean, intuition I mean I'm, I, yeah, the, uh, yeah. So I think the intuition is different because I think the, uh, I mean, I think the the well, clearly, even like for other considerations as well, I think the the definitive solution is 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 uh, even on as far as the ontological part is concerned, is more uh, parsimonious so okay and uh, i'm perfectly willing to 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 allow that you may have come to cause affinitism for a different reason and already paid that ontological cost and then what yeah. happens to you in particular having already paid that somewhere else is that you now encounter the benedetti paradox and you say i've already killed that off by my prior belief that cause affinitism is true so there's no extra ontological cost for me so oh uh, yeah great, yeah right then there you go completely agree yeah. with you that's that's absolutely fine yeah all i'm saying is if we just come to this everything else being equal yeah yeah does this consideration of the paradox tell in favor of one hypothesis over the other it seems to me that it does it slightly favors mine over cause of finitism if you've already paid yeah. that cost somewhere else then you're well within your rights to just continue to believe in cause of finitism yeah i mean i think it's your view that like the so these paradoxes the solutions like that causal finitism is a respectable like well like uh, you know it, it should be taken seriously of course, uh, yeah. so it's, it's a respectable solution along with the unsatisfiable pair and uh yeah and i guess because because it's it's been an hour and a half we want to need to talk at least about the, PS, <laughs> about the psr okay. at least but uh but on the other thing you said about this that you know it doesn't necessitate that you know the past is finite causal finitism 
so those other like Aristotelian considerations about the uh, you know the 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 infinity of like time and space and whatever aside, um, wouldn't you say that it's simpler? Uh, like I mean, uh, so what's simpler? Causal finitism. No, no. So so assuming causal finitism, which I think you said you would lean to for other considerations, not the argument alone. However, that doesn't entail that there's just a single causal chain and the, you know, time isn't, doesn't go I infinitely see. in the okay. past, I guess. So, so just putting the other Aristotelian considerations aside about the nature of time and space and stuff like that, yeah. wouldn't it be simpler to not posit extra chains? I mean, wouldn't it be simpler just For to sure. stop at one? Uh, I mean, one chain is simpler than many chains. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, so I wouldn't be postulating that there are, in fact, many chains, unless I had a good reason to think that. Um, but, you know, there's a certain cost to, you know, not not contrasting many independent causal chains to one, but supposing that, that all causal chains have a first point, like they all start together, at like a Big Bang or a first creation point in, by a god or something like that. The, you know, that type of view also comes with kind of strangeness, like you know, why this point in time rather than some other point in time? Why exactly this thing happening rather than some other thing at that point? So, and now we are directly, I guess, talking about PSI. So maybe it's a useful segue. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe let's just jump straight in there. <laughs> give, give me your thoughts generally on the PSI. Jake, you've been quiet. I don't know. You need to like jump in whenever you feel like you have something to say. <laughs> so, do you want to say something about this before we move to like the PSR? No. No. Good. Yeah. Okay, so we can jump straight well, to the PSR. If Alex, I, I've yeah, seen no. you, Jake, advance the contingency argument on a previous stream. I think so. Is that right? Thinking you're a, you're a fan of the contingency argument. Is that right? Is that fair? Uh, yeah. I, well, I like the contingency and the Kalam, both of them. So. Okay. So yeah. explain to me how you would put the contingency argument then. Um. <sighs> <laughs> well, well, it depends. Honestly, if I'm going to be quite honest, it depends who I'm talking to. Um, well, pretend reason, you're talking to me, then. Yeah. Well, the reason, yeah, but the reason why I actually prefer the Kalam is because most people have difficulty with the contingency argument. So, um, I mean, I don't think me personally. I don't think we're going to get to very very far because based on what you've already said about your theory of modality and your position on the PSR. So I take conceivability quite seriously into um, whether or not something is metaphysically possible. And I think you strongly disagree with that. So it's, I don't really see how it's going to be any way to really <laughs> adjudicate that. Um, I don't know. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Given that we fundamentally disagree on modality. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Well, so then the argument has a controversial assumption in there, which is um, only some theories of modality uh, can be true for the argument to work. And that, undermines the argument quite a lot doesn't it i mean if you think and we at an impasse unless i mean if i'm an aristotelian you can't run the contingency argument then it's not a great argument unless you've got a good argument against aristotelianism right 
Um, no, so I disagree. So this is why kind of in the beginning I asked, uh, and I think that, and this may be controversial, but I think that largely that's what philosophical arguments come down to is, well, it just seems to be the case to me that this is, and you, it doesn't seem that way to you. And we depart ways and I'm fine with that. So it doesn't really bother me at all. Uh, I think that's what's happened in the previous discussion as well. Um, mm. I can't understand for the life of me how someone can um, conceive of infinity and, you know, the objection or what I was raising earlier uh, about, you know, not beginning counting and being at a particular number at a certain point. All of that is totally inconceivable to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't see, I don't really see any reason why it would be conceivable to somebody else. And so therefore, you know, if the person says, well, it, it seems to be the case to me that it is possible. I give my reasons why. And then I just say, all right, have a nice day. <laughs> this is <that's, laughs> So, uh, yeah, it doesn't really bother any of me. I just think that's the nature of philosophy. And I, I think there's nothing unique to this particular argument, uh, philosophical argument that doesn't have underlying um, metaphysical commitments to it. And that's just the way it is. Okay, it's interesting. So it's just almost like you're just okay with it uh, having, I mean, s somewhat like severely limited apologetical use then, because like it's just, you might just run into a, an Aristotelian and then there's, you know, really no point running the contingency argument on them. So it's never going to change their mind. And all you can do in that state, circumstance is kind of shake their hands and go your separate ways. And you're just like, yeah, that's cool. That, that just happens sometimes with philosophy. Uh, these arguments yeah. can't get you everywhere. Is that, yeah. that's so so let, me, let me play my cards. Okay. I'm not personally, I mean, in a certain sense, I'm not really interested in convincing anybody. I'll just <laughs> be quite frank with you. Um, my goal on, I have a, my own personal channel of mine. I'm sharing my ideas. I do the same th thing here on Thought Adventure Podcast. And I'm more concerned with working in a particular tradition and giving people within that tradition um, intellectual arguments and satisfaction for holding the views that they do. Um, but as far as convincing other people, if people like what I say and they're convinced by it, great. If they don't, I don't really care. That's, okay, I mean, to be quite blunt about it. Yeah. So is this a difference between Islam and Christianity, then, would you guys say? That it's less evangelical in that respect? No, I would say that that's me personally. Um, I okay. think it is, Islam is about uh, spreading the truth. And uh, obviously, we don't use the word evangelism, but we, we call it dawah. Um, okay. I see myself within that sphere, but at the same time, if people are not convinced by what I say, it doesn't really bother me any. I mean, uh, I'm just one guy sharing my thoughts. So, I mean, I guess on the on the question of the, the Islam thing. So, I guess the, so the the Islam, the Quranic position. I think it's it's quite clear on the nature of dawah and like inviting people to Islam. That like you know, you you just as Jake put it, you put your cards on the table, and well, you know, you try to convince if they agree they agree if they don't agree you shake hands and 
you know, part ways and and God is the ultimate judge in that sense. And we do realize through uh, like uh, like scripture that that uh, people will differ. <laughs> people will uh, uh, fundamentally differ on intuitions and methodology and stuff like that. So I guess that's what that goes back to what I was saying earlier about disagreement. For me, this, a lot of people are very anxious about disagreement that, you right, know, right. hey, uh, you know, and, and I see this with a lot of theists as well, and specifically Muslims who come and say, hey, this philosopher said that, oh my God, my worldview is falling apart, for example, right? But it's mm-hmm. like, well, well, why does what he said matter in the sense that, like, if really that's what matters, then, well, there are other smart people who said other stuff. So, I mean, why don't you take that view or this view? So I, for this, I don't take disagreement way too seriously, but I guess what can be done, and, and this is where I really like... Uh, Opie's uh, like philosophy of argumentation, right? Uh, what, what what can be done is is basically uh, you you could talk about the implications of a view, right? So if if you show that okay, okay, so you have this certain view, let let me try and show you that it has its implications. If you do agree and you don't like the implications, then you have some work to do. I, I guess that's 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 uh, one way to look at it. And in that context, maybe we can. You can tell us about like what you think about the PSR. So, uh, well, yeah, I also think that sometimes the person holds contradictory uh, views. So, part of discussing with somebody is to try to maybe you might not see it in the beginning, maybe you do uh, try to tease out what a internal inconsistency within their own views may be, and. I think that happens quite frequently with lay people, not to say that I'm not one of them, but with people who have spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, it's not a regular thing that most people um, who are professional philosophers, no matter what they're involved in, tend to spend a lot more time constructing their own ideas in such a way that at least their conception of reality is internally consistent <laughs> so oh, well, you're not gonna some extent yeah uh, yeah so anyway that's the goal so if they don't okay then you would point out okay here uh mr craig this is where you got a problem or uh with this other person so i mean that's a sort of minimum standard that your views should be internally consistent and then from there we say okay you've passed that bar Now, the way that I look at it is, what are the axioms that you're sort of starting off with or building your theory based on? And a lot of people don't know what they are. And so that gets teased out. And then we analyze them with examples and uh, thought experiments to see whether or not those are actually uh, the best axioms to start off with or to in terms of it could be developing later on and uh, we compare them and we say, no, I actually think this one is better than this one. And the other person may disagree. And at times I think there can be reasonable disagreement on those uh, principles. And at other times I say, well, it just seems obviously the case to me that my principle is correct and the other person's wrong. And I, I'm thinking in my head, well, nothing really more I can say other than uh, it doesn't make any sense to me, uh, (laughs) whatever the principle is. I'm very sympathetic to that. And I think I'm probably sympathetic too. 
you know, let, let's, we probably agree that certain Christian doctrines that don't seem to make any sense. I mean, yeah. I, I could argue, you know, all day with someone about the Trinity or the incarnation or whatever. You know, I'm just never going to really understand, you know, what yeah. they're talking about there. Um, right. And I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I certainly don't think I'm going to be able to convince them or even show that I'm right, right rather than them. I just, I just don't know what they mean. It doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, there's not much more I can say about that. But okay, should, so uh, to focus on the PSR and the contingency argument. Um, I suppose, look, one, one, one thing to say about this is, so, so the argument is something like, look, every uh, contingent, something like this, anyway, every contingent, contingently true proposition requires an explanation for why it's true rather than false. And because it could have been false rather than true, right? So um, that invites a kind of analysis, which is familiar, where you'd say something like, well, you know, so, so P is contingently true. What explains P? Well, some other contingently true proposition explains P is because Q is true. Well, what explains why Q is true, blah, blah, blah. And you have this kind of like, you know, regress, very similar to what we were talking about already in different contexts. Um, and you might think, well, look, it can't go on forever because otherwise, you know, ultimately nothing would be explained. And it can't like go in a circle at some point, like you know, P explains Q and Q explains P, because then it seems like, you know, because there's something intolerable about circular explanation. Again, nothing really seems to be explained if that's what's going on. So the only, uh, sort of geometrically speaking, the only other possible um, structure we can think of is one where it terminates at a certain point. But then you think, well, it either terminates at a point where the thing that's the first um, explainer is contingent, but it is not explained by anything. Um, or it's, you know, the, the, the last contingent thing is explained by something that's not contingent, something that's necessary. Um, and you might say, well, look, like you can't have just like a, a first point which is contingent and not explained by anything because you know, then that just means there's no explanation and uh, violates this idea that every contingent thing has, a, has an explanation for it. So, you know, by process of elimination or something, we seem to have come to the conclusion that it must have been explained by something necessary. And, and that's basically the contingency argument. And then you start padding it out by saying, oh, well, an unnecessary being, you know, that's God, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's a number of things that strike me as not very good about that argument. Um, so, you know, Here's, here's one sort of quite influential thing that people say about this, which is that like, what explanation means in this context, again, it's, it's called the principle of sufficient reason. So what we're talking about is a prior cause that is a sufficient condition of the contingent fact being true. So a sufficient condition is like saying you've got everything you need for the condition to obtain. So it just would obtain. Um, and that basically just means you've got a condition that entails that the that P is true, say. Something that's sufficiently a sufficient reason for P is something that entails that P is true. Um, but now the problem is if that's the notion of explanation that we're talking about, then you can't ground everything in a necessary cause. Because if that thing is necessary, um, like a necessarily true proposition, then it's a simple logical fact that. Um, any logical consequence of a necessary truth is itself a necessary truth and not a contingent truth. 
So what happens is it's called modal collapse. Uh, you, you actually find that you just don't have any contingent truths at all. Everything's necessary. Nothing could have been in any way different. And that just seems you know, as intolerable as the idea that there's some contingent thing that doesn't have an explanation, right? Like that this kind of dust moat that's floating past my head right now is necessarily there and it's impossible for it to be in, in even a millimeter to the, to the left or something. That just seems you know, as, as crazy as the idea that there's some contingent truth that doesn't have an explanation. So, I mean, it just feels like there aren't any good options. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I'm struggling and to see so why that's a good option. Right? So yeah, so um, so the whole modal collapse argument. So you you don't find the so partial explanation. You don't you don't like that idea, do you? Well, I mean, look, say we've got a partial explanation, right? Um, so so what's going on there is we've got the the, the explainer doesn't entail the thing that it explains. It just like has some other relationship to it. There's loads of relationships it could have other than entailment. Like, for instance, you might say, well, it raises the probability. We might say it makes it more probable than not, or it makes it more probable than the other possible alternatives or something, right? I mean, you know, I, there's different things that are wrong with those, but I mean... Um, um, uh, lost you for a second. I'm not sure if it was me. Yeah, carry on. I got you. You're back. Okay, yeah. so I was, I was just sort of saying that, you know, once we give up on the explainer entailing the thing it explains, I mean, there's a whole menu of things we could pick instead as the relation. But let's let's not go through all of them one by one. Just standing back from it, what's going on there, if it's not a full explanation, is something about it's going to be unexplained, right? If you, any, any step away from a full explanation means you're not explaining it fully, right, obviously. So if what you do is, say, raise the probability or something or make it more probable than not, you're still not actually completely explaining why. So for instance, if I flip a coin and it lands heads, I mean, me flipping the coin obviously significantly increases the chance that it's gonna land heads. Like if I never flip it, it's not gonna land heads, but it doesn't completely explain why it lands heads. I mean, it could have landed tails, right? And if it, yeah, you know, it could have done so. Yeah, but but uh, so what, could, could we understand partial in, 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 in the, in the sense of um, sufficient but non-necessitating, and I think Coons does this, where he says an explanation can be sufficient and non-necessitating. And... Yeah, I mean, scientific explanations are almost always not the type of explanation that I was talking about beforehand. Right? So let's say you smoke and then you get cancer. I mean, but it's not that smoking entails that you get cancer because someone else could smoke their whole life and not get cancer, mm -hmm. and it's you know. You know, it has some kind of probabilistic relationship to you getting cancer, but it's not very clear, like exactly what it is. I mean, it raises the probability or something. But you know, if I say, "Why did this guy get cancer?" and you say, "Because he was a smoker," yeah, sure, I've got an explanation there. That's true. I'm not going to deny that that's an explanation. That is an explanation. It's just, is there still stuff unexplained about why he got cancer? Yeah, absolutely. Like, why did he get cancer and not the other guy who smoked just as much as him? Right, there's still something continually yeah. true that feels like it's not been explained there. And so if all we get is partial explanation and the driving intuition that we had in the first place, which was you can't leave contingent truths unexplained, is just necessarily going to be a part of that like story. Yeah, yeah. I mean I agree I agree with that concern in the sense that I mean the way I look at it, there are two sides to it. So it's like the 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 epistemic sense of like explanation as in what would satisfy you as an explanation versus what mm -hmm. is like really the explanation. Yeah. Um, 
And and I think so in the case of like the smoking and the cancer, well, it's a satisfying explanation. But really, there are other things that that that, that happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I guess so. So um, maybe there are better examples of something that can be sufficient, non-necessitating, and at the same time, you kind of have all the information there. <laughs> like so, like libertarian free will, for example. So I have, let's say, sufficient reason to uh, to eat a chocolate cake over like drinking a coke. And uh, it's not necessitating. So I go for the chocolate cake because of certain things in the chocolate cake that isn't in the Coke. But then there are other sufficient reasons that would allow me to go for the Coke where like maybe there's something in the Coke. It's refreshing or something that I'd want over the chocolate cake. Both are sufficient, non-necessitating. And I can say I did one in a non-necessitating way. And there isn't really any information missing here. On a well, libertarian view, you can say that there's no information missing, but like, um, so there's a, so it just feels like we're sort of pushing back the question um, uh, to, so sort of to begin with, like I, I'm eating chocolate cake and then I'm drinking a Coke and then we say, well, you know, I give a partial explanation for that in terms of my decision that I make as a free, as a free agent. And, and that's the end of the story. But, you know, why did you make that decision? You know, the, whatever the term, the origin point was in my head, I, you know, I, I get this idea of having the chocolate cake instead of the cake. Well, whatever the first point was, where the two paths diverge from each other, because like presumably, I don't know, 10 minutes beforehand or something, both possible worlds are exactly the same. And then I think about chocolate cake and, and this world, and then I think about cake. Uh, coke in the other world, whatever it is. Right? At some point, they diverge from each other. They branch away from each other. And I find myself in the Coke world or the cake world, whatever, two minutes later. I, I, I'm just questioning what, why this world rather than the other one. And I don't understand yeah. how you... I mean, you can just say there's no, there's no information left that you haven't described or something, but that just feels to me like, well, there's a contingent fact that this doesn't have an explanation. Well, I mean, it would see it would seem to me like that would like beg the question against like libertarian free will, because I mean, well, what what does it mean to ask a libertarian for like um, a, a, an explanation other than the fact that you did what you did? Um, well, like you say, why did you do that rather than the other thing? Uh, why, well, why so so okay, so. So I mean, the, so the way Coons would put it is that well, well, so I have reasons for the chocolate cake over the Coke, yeah, right? I, I, and and, yeah. and in, in the in the in the case that I did drink the Coke, I would have reasons, for, and I still do have reasons for the for the Coke over the chocolate cake. So there are reasons; they're just non-necessitating. I guess. Well, let's suppose those reasons are: I I like chocolate, that's my reason for picking the chocolate cake, and I'm thirsty, so that's my reason for picking the Coke. Right mm -hmm. now. Both of those reasons are present before I make my decision. So if I say, why did you pick the chocolate cake? And you say, because I like chocolate cake. And then in the other parallel world, I'm saying, why did you pick Coke? And you say, because I'm thirsty, right? It just still feels like, well, you haven't really explained anything because like the thirst and the desire for chocolate are present in both situations. And yeah. how yeah. Then does it play any explanatory role? in because the two things are the same then there's a discrepancy and how can you appeal to some feature that's 
that overlaps both of those worlds in explaining the discrepancy between the two worlds. Like it's present in both. Yeah. So, you know, how come the thirst wasn't the thing that made you, that overrode your decision? Like why was thirst motivating in the Coke world rather than yeah. uh, the desire for, I suppose that's the way to put it. Why was one yeah. of those uh, motivating rather than the other? And then, okay, so now what's the explanation for that? Does that have an explanation? Or is that the terminus point where explanation stops? Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, I guess that's 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 really the whole thing about like libertarian free will, right? And and uh, whether it requires like contrastive explanation, right? So uh, I mean, so if I say, I think the, I think the, a better way to put it would be like, well, I. Um, so if I if I say I chose to eat the chocolate cake hmm. because I chose to eat the chocolate cake. Um, then, then it would seem here that well, the reasons are not doing any uh, explanatory work. But I'm not sure about that. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like they're doing like a causal work in like a like a deterministic sense. But it 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 does seem like it still has to be part of the explanation. I mean, so so you said I chose to eat chocolate cake because I chose to eat the chocolate cake. I mean, so so yeah. Did you see the the super chat? I think it's relevant. Okay, let me let me let me from Hatton. If you think it's relevant, it's about, let me... it's about cookies. <laughs> so, okay, uh... let's let, okay let's go through it. So, uh, Malpas, you are unsatisfied with partial explanations. Isn't someone always eating cookies? Then at the present moment, one or five or a hundred cookies left, partially explained by the infinite past, not fully explained. Yeah, that's a good that's a, that's 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 a good objection, and and uh, um... yeah yeah. And he paid twenty bucks for that, so fair play. You should definitely give it out. <laughs> um, uh, should buy some, some cookies, Hatim, buy some cookies Hatim, with it. <laughs> Hatim, Hatim is a good friend of ours, so yeah. 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 Um, am I unsatisfied with partial explanations? So, first question in that, and, and the answer is no. I mean, like uh, most explanations are partial explanations. Like I said, the cancer and the smoking, nothing wrong with that as an explanation. Perfectly reasonable. Um, the, the game here is we started off with this idea in the first place that everything contingent must be explained away. And that's, that's how you get to God existing. Um, now, uh, so, and, and, and let's just remember that like, uh, you know, one of the horns of explanation that we've brushed past saying it was unacceptable at the beginning was, well, maybe there's just a brute contingency. And the reason that that was dismissed at the time is because you can't just have something that's unexplained that's contingent. Um, now, what I'm doing here is I'm saying when you have a partial explanation, when, you, when we row back a bit from, you know, sufficient reason, like full entailing explanation, what's going on is that now we're at a situation that's very similar to what we just dismissed a moment ago, because something is not explained. That's my claim anyway. So I'm saying on the partial partial explanation solution that you seem to have been going for i think it basically just collapses it back in into nothing uh, into something no better than just having a brute contingency in the sense that something contingent is unexplained and if that's not okay for the brute contingency option and it shouldn't be okay in the partial explanation uh, yeah sort of route here too so i'm trying to what's going on is yeah you need to explain to me how we're not a complete symmetry here. There's something better about your idea than the previous one. So, so just to clear it up, it's not like I'm. It's not like I don't like partial explanations. I'm just. I'm just saying that there's a problem with advancing it in this context. Uh, so yeah. just to clear that very first bit up, um, 
isn't someone always eating cookies? Isn't isn't someone always eating cookies? Then at the present moment, having one or five or a hundred cookies, that's partially explained by the infinite past. I mean, I, I, I guess I do think that um, if you say, look, why? So this guy, let's just forget the cookies for the time being. <laughs> just think about the guy who's counting down and he finishes today, and then um, uh, some. And you might say, well, what explains um, him finishing today? And and this might be puzzling because you might think, well, nothing explains him finishing today. He could have finished any time in the past. After all, he's, he's, he's already gone through an infinite sequence. Uh, every previous day, he's gone through an infinite sequence. So it sort of seems like he could have finished any previous day. So, so why now rather than some other time? So some, somewhere like that. Um, if we're just talking about partial explanation and we're really, really open-minded about what partial explanation means, and, you know, because you might say, how come the roulette wheel landed on double zeros? Um, and, you know, one very weak partial explanation for that is, you know, because it's one of the options that it could have landed on. It's not to say that that raises the probability beyond 50-50 or anything. It's just in casinos that happens sometimes, right? Um, something sort of similar can, can be said about the infinite past. I mean, if there's an infinite past, then like, in some sense, somebody could be finishing an infinite countdown at any point uh, you know at, at any point you could just come across that that could happen obviously if the past is finite you'll never come across that but if it's infinite then like in a very broad sense you could come across that at any point so it's a bit like just being in a casino some random roulette wheel or poker hand being dealt and that happens in casinos and in some way in an infinite past very broadly speaking somebody could finish an infinite countdown at any moment. So I do think that if we're really open-minded about what counts as a partial explanation, the infinite past is a, some kind of very weak partial explanation of why somebody's finishing a countdown now. So, so it's another way where... Yeah, but, but I, I, guess, I guess the yeah. issue here is that we need to separate between two things. So when I... When I so Hatim is raising a different point here. I mean, when I, when, I was, when I was talking about partial explanation, it really was about the modal collapse uh, uh, objection. Okay. So not, not not specifically about contingent things requiring explanations. So I, I agree that on these two views, there's going to be a stopping point, right? And either you're going to have modal collapse or either you're going to have some kind of contingency that, um, well, then we need to address that, right? Because the whole point mm -hmm. is, well, contingent things need explanations. But I guess it was, it was on the modal collapse part that, well, if it's non-necessitating, right? So if I can say that, that libertarian free will is that kind of thing, and if there is anything that is like that, it seems that libertarian free will is a very good candidate for that. I mean, from our own experience, I guess. Uh, I don't know your views about free will, but I mean, I just think it, it, it seems like it is uh, uh, plausibly a good candidate for that. If th So if that is the case, and, and, and we say that... Uh, um, that it is explained in that way, that that's how libertarian free will is explained. So assuming libertarian free will is true, my causal history that, that you know, brings me to a certain point doesn't necessitate the choice I'm going to make. I guess that's the gist of the idea. And if so, if it's non-necessitating, yeah. then uh, the fact that I choose A over B, uh, um, it, it's not that it doesn't have an explanation. It's that I am an agent who can freely choose a or b well uh, it doesn't have an uh necessitating explanation yeah like yeah, it just isn't one uh, a necessitating explanation of any type it's, it's not explained in that sense at all i mean there's 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 a 
So you can say there's a non-contrastive explanation. I, I'm just not sure what information is missing. So on the on the libertarian view, I mean, the fact that you say uh, I chose A because I chose A. I mean, obviously, we don't speak in that language, but just considering that point, I chose A because I chose A seems to be like a, a perfectly legitimate explanation for a libertarian agent. I mean, well, it, I, I don't see how else we can explain libertarian uh, choices. I chose A because I chose A. At least has the, the virtue of entailing that I that I chose A, right? But, but only because it's trivial. I mean, and, and and that's the problem with explanation is um, generally it's you don't explain anything by just saying you know why is why is uh, yeah, yeah. Dead because he's dead, right? I haven't explained anything by saying that. So explanation can't be reflexive like that. You can't have one and the same thing being both the explainer and the explained. Like that yeah, yeah, and I think, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right, and I think like OP raises this concern, but I think it's more of like a, a semantic thing, like so, so, um, so you could say that, um, so, so let's say, uh, uh, um, yeah, so the, I chose A because I chose A, right? So you could say that an explanation, or a a a equals a because a equals a. So let's assume that. Well, is that an explanation? Well. Some people might want to say it is self-explanatory, and then, well, the objection you just gave, I think, yeah. it obviously applies in the sense that, well, what are you really explaining? You're not explaining anything, but yeah. uh, others maybe so might say that it just doesn't require an explanation. And I guess what uh -huh. what 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 we would mean in that case is that, well, once you understand what's being said, you really don't need an explanation for it. Well, so I don't need you to explain a equals a for me. Uh, it just seems like that's the case. Oh, I don't need uh, to, I don't need an explanation for a equals a because that's necessary, right? A equals a just seems like a, a tautology of logic, so it's it's necessary. But I have I choose cake over coke isn't necessary; it's contingent. So, yeah, if it doesn't have an explanation other than kind of trivial circular ones, or if it just grounds out in me saying, well. If I choose cake, it's because of the taste. If I choose Coke, it's because I'm thirsty. Then that doesn't seem, I mean, it, it still leaves it hanging. Why the, the first motivated me picking Coke, just saying that the condition, you know, some non-necessitating conditions obtained, it still does leave it open. Why one of those was motivating and not the other. Like there's, there is still, and it's, you know, it's all very well to say, yeah, but, you know, we don't ask that question or it doesn't seem like that. But, but I'm forming a question that's just as valid as it seems to me. Yeah. I don't really see why it's any different from if I said, you know, some electron just pops into existence for no reason. And you say, oh, that can't happen. I mean, I could just say, yeah, well, you know, we think it does or something. You know. Yeah, some yeah. Point, if we're playing the same game by the same rules, you can't just appeal to some like special type of contingent event that doesn't have a causation that doesn't have an explanation but that's okay because you yeah know, it's special or something like libertarian choices are still contingent and if they don't have explanations then it's just as bad as some other thing like a electron popping into the universe yeah. but but i guess we can make a difference between something that simply doesn't have an explanation and another that doesn't need an explanation and i get there's a difference between a equals a that's necessary and a contingent yeah. choice uh, but okay, so maybe there's a bit of nuance to it here. So if I say, so if I say I chose Coke over Pepsi, or I chose, you know, chocolate cake over over the Coke, then um, 
well, there's a lot of contingency going on there. Well, because who's the I, right? I mean, so well, I'm a contingent being. So, I mean, what explains me being here and making these choices? I guess that that well, that's one question. Well, then the other question is the choice itself. The the real question I think is like on a libertarian view is that part of the explanation. So I guess I get the the proposition as a whole is contingent, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, I mean even in the case of God, it would be a contingent proposition. But then that part of the explanation wouldn't it wouldn't there be a significant difference between saying that something does not require an explanation because it's just so not I don't want to say self-explanatory, but it just doesn't need an explanation because of the nature of what it what the thing is, which is a libertarian choice. And and we understand that. We can relate to it versus versus an electron popped into existence and there's no explanation. I mean I get that in, in modal terms, <laughs> there's no real difference. But I guess when you bring the metaphysical considerations into the picture, it it seems like there's there's a serious difference. Well, Um, it's not quite clear to me the foundation that this whole thing rests on. I mean, like, so, so, so it seems well, what you want to say is, well, we know libertarian choices kind of like by acquaintance with them because we do them all the time. And that means that like we easily understand what it means to freely choose cake over Coke or whatever. So we don't, you know, don't need to worry about that anymore. Um, but that doesn't seem right to me either. I mean, like, Okay, I'm kind of acquainted with that. That's true, but at the same time, it's quite puzzling when. So, for instance, and I mean, maybe this is what you what you think, but I mean, unless you think that your acts of will somehow uh, can override the the laws of nature, right? That you can literally like intervene in what would otherwise have happened because of the physical necessities or something then you're stuck with either determinism or indeterminism. And if determinism, obviously there's, you know, you, you are just making choices fully determined, fully explained by prior choice and uh, prior conditions. And there's, there really is no libertarian freedom at all. Um, and it seems like your only option then is indeterminism. But that's really like no better because, I mean, that really just does mean things are happening um, randomly and your free choices are just as, you know, part of that. They're just, you just pick cocoa over cake because you know some proton decayed or whatever, and that's made you go down this path instead of the other one. So, I mean, uh, I mean, can you explain that a bit? I mean, what's so what's um, well, say what's random. Or... What's random about it? I get that it's indeterministic in, in that sense, but uh, I think you're saying a bit more than that. You're saying it's 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 uh, indeterministic in the sense that it's not uh, you know doesn't rely on antecedent causes. But you're also mm -hmm. saying that it's um, random in the sense that I'm not in control of it. Is that is that what? Well, I'm saying that it um, complicates that you were saying, well, we all understand this because we're making choices all the time. But actually, you can make this seem really problematic. Right? This is what I'm trying to do is question whether it really is that simple and easy to appeal to. I mean, suppose the origin of your free choice to pick cake over Coke is that some superposition in your brain collapsed to an eigenvalue of whatever as opposed to some other eigenvalue, right? I mean, suppose that's what, the, the, that's the branching point that originates your choice going one way and then not the other. Well, um, the difficulty there is that, like, there isn't any other story to tell you about, like, why it 
supernova why it collapsed in one direction rather than the other. It's just, it's effectively a brute contingency. And now we violated the PSR. So we're, we're in no better situation than we were a moment ago when I said, well, maybe something just popped into existence out of nothing for no reason or something, or just some brute contingency at the, at the base of, of everything. Um, yeah. so but I, I think when you bring the... Lines, right? Yeah. So I think when you bring like the the maybe you were just you're just using it like as an analogy the the whole quantum stuff. But then, mm -hmm. but when you bring that into the picture, I mean, it adds like uh, I guess layers to the into into the analysis that I I don't I don't think is required. So I mean, I guess what what I don't see I I I don't see a reason for why uh, uh, a primitive you know faculty of uh, um, libertarian choice necessarily has to be associated with random fluctuating particles okay so let's let's posit one that overcomes that so it's neither restricted by causal uh determinism nor in uh causal indeterminism right it's some somehow a different to those but but then now what's going on is um you know you get, Give me some kind of, uh, I mean, well, let's just try in a very broad sense, draw out what the picture you're describing looks like. So on the one hand, we've got like the laws of physics, which explain, um, you know, chemical reactions and the, 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 the collisions between objects and blah, 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 so, so, so all this stuff. And then we think, you know, something about chemistry relating to those physical laws, biology relating to those, blah, blah, blah. And then at some point, where does human where does this uh, mechanism you're positing uh, kick in? Like, how does it kick in? What's going on? Like, I just, it, it's its actually quite a mysterious addition to insert into the otherwise relatively, although, you know, those things I've explained, but like relatively straightforward causal story that we all grow up knowing about. What you're saying is there's this like, I mean, not literally, but it sounds like a kind of magical interventionist ability that your what mind has to overcome the laws of physics and like choose options or whatever like it's really you know it's far away at least from you saying yeah yeah we don't have to worry about this this is an everyday thing that we all understand perfectly well uh, no i don't think it's like that at all it's very difficult to yeah. explain what's going yeah. on there. i guess that's my that's my point yeah i mean i guess so i mean if we're talking about like like the metaphysics of causation here, right? So I guess the idea is that, that well, I'm not going to, um, I, I don't think anything is straightforward about it, to be honest. I don't think the chemistry is straightforward either. So I, I don't think, a, a, if, we're if we're looking at, because it seems like you're looking at the everyday experience as well and saying, well, it's just normal that that thing bumps into that thing and then that stuff happens. Okay, I think yeah. when, we're, when we're looking at a broader metaphysical picture, I don't think any of it really is, is um, I don't think anything, any of it should just be taken for granted. And it's just common sense that that happens. And this part isn't common sense. I think uh, the everyday picture is that both of them are common sense. And the broader metaphysical picture is trying to account for what makes it the way it is. So so I, I don't think there's anything strange. In fact, I think, uh, I think really we can't really relate to anything more than this most, this internal experience we have of a uh, 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 libertarian choice. Well, maybe, maybe you disagree, but at least there is something internal to us that we can relate to more than anything uh, in, in in the external world and the way the causal nexus around us makes things operate. But um, 
so I, yeah. I guess in that sense, I just don't see the problem really with saying that, well, hey, that ping pong ball bumps into that one and then there's that reaction. And well, here there's within me this mechanism that I move myself. Yeah, okay. So I suppose that like, I mean, I think you understand at least the, the general picture I was painting, which is that, like, there's a causal story. It's not quite clear how to fit this um, self-moving will into that causal story. It doesn't, doesn't seem to fit in on determinism. It doesn't seem to fit in on indeterminism, but they seem to be the only two options. They're mutually exclusive, so, like, it doesn't seem to fit in. So this is kind of at least a question mark about how that fits in together. And then I suppose, well, what's, what's the other camp saying? It's kind of determinists and compatibilists. What are they saying? Because you're basically advocating an incompatibilist view here, which is like a hard uh, free will kind of position. But on the other side, what they're saying is um, human choices is just a, an event in the causal sequence, just like anything else is, right? So they bite the bullet and say, yes, uh, internal um, seeming of free choice being different from the other sequences of events. Um, is, is in some ways illusory, so it's not actually veridical to what's going on. Biting that bullet allows, uh, well, it has as its consequence a clash with how it seems to us, right? Our kind of in intuitive internal picture, that's true. So that's kind of counts against the theory to some extent that it does that. But the explanatory payout to that is that now you have a unified um, causal story, at least in principle, about what's going on in the world when you're making choices. So um, on the one hand, you've got a theory. And that would be, sorry, that would be the determinist positing this, right? Determinists kind of it, it, compatibilist. So, you know, both those two are basically the same when it comes to this. Yeah, because I guess my concern, just very quickly, so you can continue, but just taking this into consideration, my concern is like, why, why is my, uh, um, you know, why is libertarian free will not indeterministic? I think you're just thinking of a very specific picture of indeterminism. Yeah, it's, it's not determinism on the one hand and libertarian freedom on the other. It's libertarian freedom on the one hand and um, the denial of libertarian freedom on the other. It's, it, so it doesn't take a stand on whether uh, determinism or indeterminism is true, but it's just saying which if, whichever of those two is right, um, there's not a second type of cause which is called free choices by agents or something. Free choices by agents is actually just a, a cause in the causal order just like any other just like a rock falling down a, a mountain or a superposition decaying like that's all that there is it's just causes like that and we obviously think about them differently because you know we're we're apt to do that but we're just wrong if we think that it's you know, just metaphysically different from those but when you're talking about indeterminism are you talking about like Obviously, you're not talking about like the the epistemic sense where we where we think there like there's like real indeterminism, but yeah, that, real like in yeah. stochastic like laws of physics. Yeah, yeah, like but that. but I mean, what what does that look like in the sense that like um, so it's probabilistic. Yeah, right. It, and and I don't know. I guess I have questions about objective probability that that, but like maybe <laughs> look. Okay, so so uh, yeah. You, you wanted to say something? Well, I mean, there are versions of, of quantum mechanics, like the Copenhagen version, where like the collapse of the superposition um, is just probabilistic, right? It's just genuine, like prob uh, probabilistic physics at that point, as opposed to say something like the Everett interpretation, where like it's just the deterministic evolution of the wave function or something. So, I mean, I don't know if that's helpful in any way, but like yeah, yeah, know, I, I get, I, I get it. I just, I just, I guess this is just my 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 point of view is. 
really what we do have access to causally, if we're trying to be as simple as possible, mm-hmm. is and you know the macro scale, which is seemingly deterministic, and the agencies that we see in the world, the agents that we see that don't seem to be just as a seeming, don't yeah. seem to be strictly following that macro level determinism. Now, sure. when we look at the quantum scale, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't want to. That's the problem I said earlier with bringing the like, quantum mechanics into it because it just adds this layer into the analysis that about something that we know like very, very little about. Like, I, I think like we're still like scratching the surface, but uh, just as a concept, I think I can see here like that w- the obvious part. Like, like it's not like one of them is obvious, the other is not. No, it's obvious that there's this macro level determinism, and it's obvious that there are agents in the world that seem to be in some kind of violation of it none of the none of these seem like like they both seem weird on a grander scale but like in the common sense uh, of when you bring it back to common sense i think that both just are, are are obvious and i guess like so um i guess my so so when we talk about simplicity right so like like so so think of an idealist right so i mean and um and i mean are they positing the simpler explanation so like maybe maybe in, in in terms of like all aspects so there's only like mental causation only the mental world exists well is that simpler i mean i guess it explains everything that we can explain there might be controversy there but generally speaking they can explain everything so is that simpler and would i take that view uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know and uh, in a sense because um i've uh i've read a few papers by i forgot his name uh, anyway, I read a few papers by a philosopher, like uh, who, like in the past century or two, who, who, um, in response to Hume, Reed, yeah, he's Reed. Okay. So, in, in in response to Hume, he he makes a very compelling case, at least compelling, like in the sense that, well, he, he's not talking a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> he's against Hume that, well, it, it seems like, if anything, you can't deny agent causation. You can deny whatever you want out there. But you, but you can't deny agent causation, and maybe that takes us to to uh, to a question about you know how Coons and Proust wrote a paper about the PSR and global skepticism, right? Yeah, and I, yeah, and I'm wondering what you think of that approach, that epistemic approach to the PSR, that a rejection of a certain type of PSR can lead to a kind of skepticism about what I was just saying about you know external world like the your empirical knowledge well you'll have to forgive me for not i mean for not remembering the fine details of that paper actually but um so the general idea is they propose that so their psr is about natural facts not contingent facts that you know all natural facts have an explanation and there's at least one supernatural fact that's the gist of it and the the general point is that well if you don't have any a priori method to uh, um, to basically uh, 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 discern the explainable from the unexplainable or what requires an explanation from what doesn't, then you uh, basically can, can fall into, like it's a slippery slope to like a radical kind of skepticism because you can't really say anything about the external world and you can't really appear to your empirical knowledge to rectify that problem, because that would be viciously circular, because that's what we we want to justify. 
Um, so, and what's wrong with saying that the distinction between what needs an explanation, what doesn't, is what's contingent and what's necessary? Um, I mean, I guess the 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 because I guess what we're concerned with here is maybe how you identify that in the sense that um, because when you talk about concrete origins, right? When you talk about causal explanations and talk about concrete uh, necessity, it's it's very different than mm, this okay. analytic analytic necessity. So I guess what, I guess it's about what is the candidate for that. In the well, I'm happy way. enough to say that everything that's concrete is contingent, but you know, theists are not going to say that because they want to say that God is concrete, but necessary. So, so if anything, the picture seems more complicated on your side. And okay, so 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 that that's 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 good. So you want to say everything that is concrete is necessary, and by so, concrete, sorry, everything you mean? Is concrete is contingent. Everything that is concrete is contingent. Yeah, did I say it the wrong way around the first time? Right? No, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Everything that is concrete is contingent and fine. But where, where does that lead you? That takes you, like, in, in, in the context of a discussion about uh, the contingency argument, it really takes you to abstract objects that are not causally, they don't have causal ability. They're causally effete. So, I mean, so hmm. we don't really have an account, causal account for, for, uh, for the contingent stuff. Anyway, I mean. Oh, well, I mean, but then I'm coupling that with. Uh there being a beginningless past of contingent concrete events, each one causes the next one. Mm. Right? So, I mean, I guess that's but, my... But that's, but, I have to pick a view here. That's probably... But then there would be... But there would be no explanation for that in the sense that, well... So I guess the concern is, so if, if we're saying the contingent stuff need an explanation, so if we're agreeing yeah, with yeah. that... Well, then that series would be contingent. So, in the sense that, well, so you're not appealing to something necessary. But then, in this case, in the proposal you put forward, the necessary thing is a abstracting. So that's not going to do any work. No, no, abstract things don't explain concrete things. Yeah. Um, so, what I'm going to say here is that there's so picture there being an infinite past of contingent events, each one, each one causing the subsequent one. Um, then, no contingent fact is unexplained because each, as I just said, each one is explained by the previous one. Um, then it seems to me what you're, all you're left with is saying, well, what about the whole sequence, right? What explains that? Um, and <laughs> I'm just gonna say that the explanation of the whole thing is just the conjunction of the explanations of each of the individual things. So, yeah, yeah, but the, I mean that's um, that's Hume's uh, objection, right? And uh, yeah, and I don't think anyone ever really gave a good rebuttal. I to mean, that. so I think uh, like Proust talks about that. He talks about like uh, what's the word uh, agglom I can't, agglomerative explanation, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where when like well that that that, that assumes that it assumes that well uh, if 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 I explain. Uh, uh, X and I explain Y, then I've explained the existence of X and Y. But um, it, it seems like if we're if we're taking the contingency argument seriously, there is still going to be a contingent fact. So you could have causally explained, you know, all all that stuff, but there's still going to be a contingent fact that's not explained. So well, I guess, and that's I, I guess that's the whole series. So I don't know if I agree though, because like you know take two random contingent facts, right? Like that I had coffee this morning and that like Julius Caesar had one slipper on when he was killed or something, right? Like, I don't know if that's true, but let's just suppose that it's true. Um, now, 
each of those facts has an explanation, presumably. Um, and now consider the set that contains both of those facts in it. Is there a, an explanation beyond the conjunction of both of those individual facts for that set? I think uh, the answer is obviously no. There's why well, no, think not not for the yeah not for the particular set, but there's obviously an external explanation for what's happening here in the sense that well, uh, I think we're thinking abstractly of the set no, but then in terms of like the concrete world, there will be a further explanation. That's still going to keep asking why, why, and I guess the, the the reason I don't think this gets out of the skeptical problem is that because so there's still there's still it's still possible to have a contingent reality that. Uh, has no explanation and what i mean has no explanation here is the fact that there exists a contingent series uh i don't know if you want to say that makes it necessary because what you said is necessary is the abstract object so that means that this contingent reality can exist uh, and it doesn't call for an external explanation and the concern as as as, as Kuhn puts it is that well i mean it really could be the case that your first person experience your you know uh, first person experience in a particular frame of time can be that i mean it, it could be the result of an infinite series or it could be uh, you know that explanation and as, as silly as that sounds it seems like um the only way you can rule that out is really your experience but the problem is that begs the question because what we're trying to validate is your knowledge your empirical knowledge so i, I guess you can't appeal to it and I, I don't know. So it, it just seems to me that it doesn't uh, get out of get out of the problem. It seems much, much more for me. It just seems much more obvious, um, especially considering this is already a very intuitive principle that people throughout history have had in, in one way or another. And people who generally hold to that, you know, um, natural things. And if we're going to divide that however you want, like as limited, finite things have explanations. And that's just a broad metaphysical principle. And you can come to a conclusion through that. Well, I'll, hold on a minute. So the, I thought the starting point was that each contingently true proposition has to have an explanation for why it's true rather than false. And um, yeah, I'm not maybe. sure I agree if the starting point has to be, well, the point of my example with the me having coffee for breakfast and Caesar's slippers, right, is to suppose, is to cast doubt on the idea that you could generalize from that original starting point to say, not just each contingently true proposition has an explanation, but that each set of contingently true propositions has an explanation you know, over and above the conjunction of the explanation of the individual elements of the set. I mean, I disagree with that principle. I think you probably also disagree with that principle by the sounds of it. You don't think there's some special explanation um, over and above. So so it, why did I have coffee? There's some explanation for that. It's called P, have, me having coffee. And it's just, that's explained by Q, some previous thing that happened earlier on in the day. That explains Oh, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so but I... Explained, but now just consider the set P and, I don't know, R, which is Caesar's slippers proposition now both of those have explanations right so something explained why his slipper fell off a few minutes before he was stamped to death something explains why i made coffee instead of say tea or something right so both of those are explained but it's not like that set has if you want to explain the elements of the set you just have to say well 
But first, there's the explanation of why Alex picked coffee, and second, there's the explanation of why Caesar's slipper fell off or something, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. the conjunction of those two explains yep. the set. Yeah, but our, right. so what is your picture then? You're saying there's an infinite amount of contingent things that explain each other? Is that each, what you're trying to I mean, say? I mean, let me, Jake, 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 so I'm going to mute. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to mute. Let me just say this about that point because I mentioned it earlier and then Jake, you can take over. So I guess on that point, I mentioned it earlier. So earlier I was saying that, well, the fact that, well, uh, Abdul drank a Coke, that uh, the, the self-explaining part on the libertarian view is 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 the fact that I chose to drink Coke. But however, if you look at the proposition as a whole, well, who the hell is Abdul? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's the point. So unless you say, unless you say, so if you say, for example, the necessary being freely chose to create the world and we we want those two to be equivalent well freely choosing to create the world that doesn't need an explanation and the necessary being is necessary it doesn't need an explanation so that doesn't require an external explanation so i guess that's the difference between these two but then i mean i don't think any of that deals with the with with, with the skeptical problem because again whatever you say about the, the, this possible scenario being being um you know completely ex explained by the the the, the its constituent parts that that you you don't know what's out there. You you don't know the the parts in the sense that you don't have any a priori means to actually rule out the possibility that your experience is that contingent thing that formed the conglomeration of contingency. And maybe well, that's necessary. Maybe that doesn't need an explanation. But we're not talking about epistemic explanation. I mean, obviously, I, everybody is lacking some aspect of explanation for stuff. So I, I thought we already said that we're not talking about epistemic explanation we're talking about metaphysical explanation like what actually is the thing that happened that explains why the, the other thing happened the fact that i'm lacking the information doesn't mean there isn't an explanation right even if nobody knows what the explanation is there is one so it we're not talking about what we know we're talking about what actually does explain whatever right? it's not yeah but i guess so the but the a priori principle to remove the skeptical concern sorry jake i'm going to bring you in right now but to, to basically to to get over the the skeptical uh, uh concern is that the point is that what you need to a priori know uh, and you can interpret no here however you want what you need to a priori know is that well there is this type x that requires explanations and my current like solipsistic experience is part of that type x i guess that's 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 the point so i uh, jake if you want to say something okay. i'm gonna mute uh, but uh alex you can reply first well i think i think the reply is that i probably need to go and read the paper again to have a clearer maybe yeah, that, yeah that's fine some of what you were saying then in that case yeah that's fine uh so jake you you wanted to say something sorry for yeah i'm just trying to understand the overall picture it seems like we have an infinite amount of things in Alex's framework, all of which are contingent. And, you know, it's this kind of chain of one explaining the other. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering if you, if you, it seems like you're not accepting the strong PSR. Uh, I don't know if you would endorse the weak PSR or what sort of principle uh, are you working with, or you just don't have any principle at all. Well, I mean, let's just be quite clear about it. I, I'm not really like saying I think this is true, but I, I guess I'm saying I don't see how you ruled this option out, right? Like it, to, to, to prevent the argument going through, you just need to have one of the various sort of horns 
that were pre presented at the beginning are still on the table and you haven't managed to argue by elimination to to the necessity of like the necessary cause version instead so I, I'm not saying like I believe this, this is my view. I'm just saying what's wrong with this view? So it's a strong PSR view. Every contingent event strongly explains the next one. Um, and there's just infinitely many of them. There's no stopping point. And then the classic objection to this is something like, yeah, but what explains the whole sequence? Or why this whole sequence rather than some other whole sequence? And I guess my reply was saying, well, the explanation of the whole sequence is just the conjunction of each of the elements themselves. So what explains P, it's Q. What explains Q, it's R, blah, blah, blah. So like the explanation of the whole sequence just basically is um, the, the individual explanations for each element in the sequence. Now, if that's right, then there's nothing that's not explained. Each thing is explained. Each part of the whole is explained. And if each part of the whole is explained, then the whole is explained. Um, and I, I was arguing, well, I, I mean, I guess I was saying, look, if you think that in general, whenever you have like a set or something that's got like elements to it, that you have to have more than just the explanation of each of the individual parts to have an explanation of that whole, then I deny that principle. And here's the counter example, me having coffee for breakfast and Caesar wearing one slipper. It's implausible to suppose that there's some third thing which explains that, apart over and above the individual explanation for my having coffee and the individual explanation for Caesar wearing one slipper. Like once you've given those two explanations, that's it. You, you're done. Explains nothing else to say about it. Like each PS, strong PSR is satisfied. There's no contingent thing left. Yeah, but that's what I wanted to be clear on. So then you are you're you are accepting the strong PSR. Uh, in your explanation well because what I'm doing is um, I'm agitating against the argument I'm saying let's suppose the PS strong PSR is true um, but how did you eliminate this idea that there's a never-ending sequence of explanations because in order for the argument to be successful you have to eliminate all of the other options it's, a, it's an argument by elimination right yeah, I, I I get that, but I'm I'm asking at this point because I've been listening for quite a while. I'm asking at this point if that's the view you um, obviously you're. I'm not saying that you have to commit to it, but I'm saying is is that the view that you lean towards, or are you just responding this way in virtue of the argument and you you really have no confidence in strong PSR whatsoever? Yeah, I think that's, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's, it's an instrumental um, invocation of the principle for the purposes of arguing against the success of this contingency argument. It's right. not like so, I believe in it myself. So yeah. So, so my question is then what's your actual position on the strong PSR? Well, I mean, so, so, this, so as I said in the first place, this kind of modal collapse argument makes you think that either the strong PSR is false or everything is necessary or, well, yeah, no, actually that's it. It's either the strong PSR is false or everything is necessary. So um, if I have to pick out of those two 
I guess I don't think everything is necessary. I mean, I guess I reject strong PSR just because otherwise I feel like I have to reject. I have to accept that everything is necessary, and that seems wrong. So, well, if, why? If you put why? To my head, then I would pick the, the strong PSR as false. Well, why is that? Given what you've just said, um, the explanation you gave seemed to affirm the strong PSR, and yet everything is contingent; not everything is necessary. Well, I mean, okay, that, that's that's fair. So, so I suppose there's another kind of dimension to the strong PSR. The first one is that uh, is that explanation is is necessitating. Um, um, okay, what's the right way to put this then? So then, yeah. So I suppose what I'm saying is. If you think that, okay, so here's another way to put this, right? Okay, let me let me let me try and be a bit more explicit about it. I guess what I'm saying on this Humean view that there's a never-ending or well, never-beginning sequence of contingent events, each one that explains the next, is that you do just say there's no explanation of the totality of contingent reality. That's just unexplained. Um, you just, but you deny. The, the, what I was trying to do is sort of deny that the original motivation uh, pushes you to that second claim that you have to accept, you have to explain uh, the whole of contingent reality. But let's suppose, so, so, so I suppose what I'm saying is that the strongest version of the PSR as both of the explanation is entailment and uh, the whole of contingent reality has, has that type of explanation. Now, that, if you, you hold both of those things, then you get this fanning wagon uh, argument, which is, which is effectively that um, suppose, suppose within this like shape here, the circle or something I'm drawing, has the whole of contingent reality, and absolutely every contingent fact right, is contained within this area. Now, if that has a necessitating explanation for it, then it can't be from a contingent thing. It has to be from a necessary thing, because we just said every contingent thing is within this area, and also self-explanation seems incoherent, right? So I guess that's another aspect to this. I'm assuming self-explanation is incoherent, but that seems pretty obvious. Um, well, then it follows that the explanation must be necessary. If explanation is a necessitation relation, then because every consequence of a necessary Sorry, fact. Sorry, Alex, Alex, maybe if you can clarify, point. before you carry on, maybe clarify that last yeah. point, because it seems like the infinite series of contingent things, that's, it seems like that's a, that's a, it seems like that's a self-explanation, at least when I'm asking why do contingent things exist? Well, no, well, but this, here's, yeah. here's the point that I'm confused about. So it, it seems like you're, you said two different things, right? And that's why I introduced this third option. On the one hand, it seemed like you were trying to say, well, there is, no, there is no such thing as the conjunction of everything, of all the parts. You know, they, they are explained by the individual uh, members, right? But then on the other hand, when, you, when I'm asking for your view and you bring this point up, I said, mm -hmm. well, it seems like you're affirming the strong PSR and everything is explained. But then he said, well, wait, let me think about that more. No, actually, 
the thing which is the totality is unexplained over and against others. So it, yeah. it's, it's okay. seemed like you slid back and forth kind of. I think that's fair enough. I think that um, I may have been. Uh, so no, that's fine. Well, I guess I'm saying yeah. which one are you really going with at this point? Just so I can understand what the theory is. Cause they're, they're two different theories, right? I mean. Yeah. Okay. So I think, so what I was doing in the first place was like playing the game of like, what do I think, like what's going on? Like, what's the analysis or fruitful analysis of the argument? And now secondly, you're saying to me, but what do you actually think? So I think it's slightly different questions and it's reasonable to ask that second question. And I think now, now I'm focusing on that second question rather than the first one. It's, it's reasonable because it's bringing out something that I hadn't really uh, spent enough time explaining the first time around. So fair yeah. enough. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so the first time around I was saying, well, look, I, I dispute the requirement for this sort of like additional explanation or something, but I think it's fair enough if I'm, if I'm picking a view to be honest about like, yeah, I guess what happens is um, on that view I was explaining, you do just have to say that we're, we're just not endorsing the requirement for an overall explanation. But uh, the strongest, the reason why I reject the strongest possible PSR is because if you include that requirement to explain all of causal, all of contingent reality, absolutely everything, with an entailment relation, then the Van Ingwergen argument shows you that the thing doing the explaining has to be necessary, because the thing being explained is all of contingent reality. That the only thing left is necessary. And if the Necessitate, if the explanation relation is a necess, necessitation relation, then it follows logically that um, that there is no contingent reality at all because the logical consequences of necessary truths are themselves necessary. There's no contingent logical consequence of a necessary truth. And so that is a some of the most strong version of modal collapse that you get. And now the way out of that is to Suppose that there's some contingent uh, thing that's not explained by the PSR, the very strongest PSR, or that everything is necessary, or that the strongest version of the PSR is false. Um, and I, I just don't see that you can chart a course between those. So do you, do you follow that chain of reasoning? Though? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I do. But so now what I'm saying is now we're back to the two options instead of this other third option in which everything, everything is contingent and everything is explained. Now we're back to, well, there's something that's fundamentally contingent that isn't explained or everything is necessary. That's kind yeah. of where we're at now. That's so. Um, but then I go back to my original question. What sort of, explanatory principle are you dealing with because if you're at that point if you're not accepting because you're saying well if i have those two options the one of everything being necessary just seems more absurd than the other uh, option yeah so it seems right. like you're leaning more towards that one which mm -hmm. then would entail a rejection of the strong psr which then goes back to yeah. my original okay. question what explanatory principle would you be operating with? Well, I mean, if you have to have something that's contingent, that's not explained in that strong 
necessitation way. Um, the view I was advocating a moment ago, which is a beginningless chain, at least has the virtue that every individual thing is explained. Um, if we have to have something that's not explained, it's really just, I mean, like I said, I, I can get off you something as a, con uh, you know, as a con uh, commiseration. You can't have a proper explanation of the whole of contingent reality, but what you can have is the conjunction of all of the contingent things. So in a way you do explain everything. Right? It's not like something's popping into existence out of nothing, right? Some brute contingency that just starts a new chain or something, which arguably is what happens on the libertarian view anyway. Um, so at least I'm saying everything has a kind of proper strong explanation. If you want that, if you like that type of thing, here's a view for you, right? It's just uh, the way you escape the modal collapses, uh, the whole of contingent reality, that whole sequence doesn't itself have a necessitating explanation. If it did, then actually you'd have modal collapse again. So you have to, something has to give to avoid modal collapse. Uh, you can embrace a weaker necessitation relation. So not the strong PSR, or you can say something contingent exists that's not explained by that. You could pick a specific contingent proposition and just say that that's not explained, but it explains everything else. Or you could do the thing that I was saying, which is no individual contingent proposition is unexplained, but the entire chain is in a sense unexplained. But I, I give you I, I give you an offering <laughs> on that view, which is that conjunction of all of the individual explanations. It seems to me it's a pretty good deal gets you that best balance of all of those considerations. Yeah, but then it seems that there are two things uh, that I don't think the theory really deals with. I mean, the old famous question of why is there something rather than nothing? It doesn't explain why things exist rather than nothing at all. And it also doesn't explain why the actual world rather than another possible world. So those two questions seem to me to be left unanswered uh, okay but then i mean let's let's do a comparison then i mean because you know you can, no view is completely invulnerable to any problem but the real thing is do do yeah, i'm just doing an analysis that's all i'm just yeah, yeah. trying to say what what are we left with on each uh theory and view that's all I, yeah. I get it so so but what i'm saying is uh are those considerations that are better explained on your theory than mine for instance, and if they're equal on both theories, then they don't help us tell between the theories, right? Like, you know, arguably, no, no theory explains away solipsism completely, but that doesn't, you know, solipsism's no, doesn't help tell which theory is true, right? Because it affects every theory the same way. So it's just, you know, it's a problem for everybody. So if this was a problem for both of us, then, you know, so what, right? If it's a problem for me, but not a problem for you, then good, it helps you and it hurts me. So let's see if it's a, one of those, right? Is there a problem for everyone or is it just a problem for me? So, I mean, uh, you're saying that on this view where there's an infinite sequence of contingent things, it doesn't explain why there's something rather than nothing. What's the explanation of why there's something rather than nothing on your view? Because um, there's a necessary being that exists in all possible worlds. Could he have not made anything at all? But he would always still be something. So there would some be something that always exists. No. So, so oh, he, so he, you think there's a necessary. Well, because I think God is necessary. So I'm saying, assuming that we go with the option that there's something that's necessary, 
Um, so God is necessary and he exists in all possible worlds. That would explain why there's something rather than nothing at all. And then also uh, the second point of why there's the actual world over another possible world is explained by God's action, which I know we went through the whole thing about libertarian free will and, and all of that, those issues. But I still think um, that theory overall has more explanatory power and strength than the view that doesn't explain why there's something at all rather than nothing and also doesn't really do anything to help understand or explain why the actual world over another possible world. Okay, so on your view, the reason... So I'm not sure this helps you in any way, right? So unless you think that... Because I think necessary truths don't have any explanation, right? Like, why is one plus one equals two? There's, there's no explanation, not in the terms that we were talking about a moment ago, where, like, you state the prior condition that necessitates that thing coming about. Like, why did I have coffee rather than tea? Or why did this uh, ball roll down the hill or something, right? Like, what we're doing when we give that type of explanation is we're stating prior conditions that necessitate the, the thing we're trying to explain, right? But if I talk about a necessary truth, then they, because they're independent of any conditions obtaining, that you can't give a condition that necessitates it, right? It's necessary, even if that thing didn't happen, for everything, right? Now, maybe there's a concrete thing that exists necessarily. Now, I don't think so, but it's your hypothesis. So let's, let's run with it and see what happens. Um, if necessary truths don't have any explanations, then nothing explains why that thing exists. And I, you, you were telling me that this is a part of your theory, which is better than mine, specifically on the question of why something exists rather than nothing. But your answer was because a necessary being exists. That doesn't have any explanation. So how is that better than me saying, well, a lot of concrete uh, contingent things happen. And, you know, I offered you some kind of explanation for it, but you didn't like it. But I mean, your, your, your alternative is just to postulate some necessary truth, which kind of by definition doesn't have any explanation at all. I don't, don't see how that does better. You know, the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Because a thing exists for which there's no explanation why it exists. That's not a good explanation. That's no explanation at all, right? So that's why I don't think that explanation works. It's not an explanation, just positing a necessary being. Even if it's true that it exists, nothing explains why that exists. So therefore, nothing explains ultimately why there's something rather than nothing. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I think uh, <laughs> I kind of want to go on to a different topic. Um, Too much ponage and trying to run away through it. <laughs> no, no, because I think it's related to what I want to say, because I think you do believe in necessary things that exist in all possible worlds. Um based on your conversation with um, James Anderson and your understanding of Platonism. So yeah, I think, sure, those are abstract things, not concrete things. Yes, right. So those yeah. are abstract things. So do you think it's, it's possible for those abstract things to exist apart from um, the actual world or any other concrete existence? 
I, I think, yeah, the existence of abstract things is independent of the existence of any concrete things. Yeah. Right. So then in that case, um, there's a possible world in which only abstract necessary things exist and no concrete, um, nothing concrete exists. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. I mean, okay. I, I'm playing the game a bit. An Aristotelian. Well, I'm just player, wondering. But, is this a, I mean, I'm just, it, yeah. On, on an Aristotelian view where there's no beginning to time, every possible world overlaps with the actual world. So, I mean, unless the actual world at no point contains any concrete things, then um, there isn't a possible world where at no point is there a concrete thing. Like if there's some concrete thing at some point in the actual world, then it's not possible. This is an entirely empty world, no concrete things in it. But ah, know. so 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 that well, so that yeah. So then that's my point. Is then that means that something concrete is necessary. Um, huh. I mean, it, it follows that if there's something concrete, then it's necessary that there's something concrete. That's true. It doesn't follow. It doesn't. I don't have to hold that there is, but um, yeah, I think that's right. On, on the Aristotelian view, that's right, that there's, there couldn't be an empty world unless the actual world is an empty world. Uh, right, but then if that's the case, then now you have something necessary that's concrete, and now we go all the way back to step one, in which your, your theory is now radically different. No, 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 it's because I don't, I don't have that there's a necessary concrete thing, but I think it's necessary that there's something concrete, but that each of those things could be contingent. It's just that there couldn't be no con uh, concrete things. Right? But it doesn't mean there is one concrete thing that's necessary. It just not, means not individual, but the but, concrete thing exists. Yeah, but the genus, I'm saying. So when like we're talking- first thing or something, what do you mean by the genus? What do you mean the, the type? Yeah, the category of concrete. Oh, so the, so, so something so the category concrete. of something yeah. being concrete, that's necessary. Yes. And so I'm not saying that therefore you're forced into, oh, a particular molecule or a, a pen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, but there, the, the category of concrete existence would then be necessary. Yeah, okay, well, that's compatible with me saying every concrete thing contingently exists. Yeah. Right, but now, to me, it seems like you're getting a bit closer to uh, the view that we're trying to represent. Uh, maybe a little bit, but I'm not sure that it's significantly closer because... Um, this, so let me see if I can retrace the steps where we just got got to because yeah, maybe, sure. maybe I'm missing this but um, what I I was advancing that view that there's a beginning sequence of contingent propositions let's say contingent concretely existing things or something um, and you said well that view suffers from this problem that it can't explain why there's something rather than nothing um, and then you said, well, on our view, there's, there's a necessary concrete thing. Um, then I said, well, problem with that is it doesn't explain anything if it's a necessarily existing concrete thing. And now you're saying, well, on the Aristotelian view, it's necessary that some concrete thing exists 
brackets if it's actually true that some concrete thing exists, whatever. Um, what's the significance of that concession? How does that, I'm not sure how it deals with them because my rebuttal to your point was you're not explaining anything if you've got a necessarily existent concrete thing because necessarily necessary truths don't have explanations. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not sure that you're disagreeing with me about that or not. Yeah, because I originally, I originally was, well, I shouldn't say originally, but the step in the discussion I wanted to go back to is when I was talking about uh, a possible world in which abstract objects exist, but no concrete object exists. Originally you said yes, but then you thought, given your Aristotelian view of what you were yeah, if um, I'm going to play the representing, game. Yeah, yeah. If you're representing, if you're sticking to that, then you're saying, no, no, that's not really going to work. So then if the action. But before yeah. we get to that bit, just whilst yeah. we were still on the point that when I, because you said on our view necessarily existing concrete thing exists. And I said, I don't understand how that provides any explanation. I'm, I, before we start mm -hmm. talking about whether I think there could be no concrete things, I'm just not clear whether, whether you agreed with that reply or whether you disagreed with it uh agreed with what that necessary necessary truths don't have explanations do you agree with that um yeah in, in a sense that i don't really like the self-explanation idea uh -huh. so so if there's an entity x that's concrete and exists mm. and that that's a necessary truth yeah. nothing explains that X exists because it's a necessary truth, right? No, there's nothing. We just out, yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing outside of the thing itself. No, that's explaining. Okay. No. So yeah. originally the criticism was I can't explain why something rather than nothing exists, and your and I said, well, what happens on your theory? And you said, well, on our theory, God exists necessarily. But now yeah. I think I've just got to concede that nothing explains that. So how can it well, cause be? Well, because now I'm showing that you're winding up in the same place. But before we now... talk about that, how, it still feels like you haven't... Are you agreeing then that your theory doesn't have an explanatory advantage because it doesn't explain away why... It doesn't have anything to say about why there's something rather than nothing. Positing a being that exists necessarily with no explanation can't explain why something exists rather than nothing, can it? Um... Well, when you say, why is there something rather than nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And we're including uh, concrete existence in that. I'm saying that if God is a necessary being and he exists in all possible worlds, yeah, that ex in the sense explains the question of why there couldn't be non-existence. But nothing explains why he exists. So it's only to take one step back <laughs> in the weird. chain of explanation and, and then you find that you're... A, because if I say, look, it's just a brute contingency that something exists, then you might rightly complain that, well, take one further step back. Why does that brute contingency exist? I say, well, no reason at all. And you say, aha, there's no reason then. It's no good to just give me one step of explanation away from the kind of precipice of there being no explanation beyond that. But it seems to me exactly what you've done by just giving me you know, just some object exists necessarily, but nothing explains that. I mean, if anything is, is an unsatisfying explanation, it must be that. <laughs> Mind if I jump in here? Because this is this is great. I mean, I've been listening. This is this is awesome. But 
So I think at, at this point, so I, I think the, the, the most important point here is that, well, it seems like this is going to boil down to the fact that on both views, I'm not saying you're necessarily committed to this, Alex. I'm just saying, as far as the discussion is concerned, both views are going to commit to something necessary. But right now there's the, the there's, so there's the question of the overall theory and wait, how is there a difference? You're saying that there's something necessary, has no explanation. I'm saying there's something necessary. It has no explanation, but I'm not really sure that's the case. So first of all, there's, there is the question of whether self-explanation makes any sense, and that's that's controversial. So we can either accept that there, there is self-explanation or say that something doesn't need an explanation. Now, if we go for the latter, something doesn't need an explanation, we can either say it doesn't need an explanation by uh, uh, virtue of it being necessary, period, and that can like literally be the tree right outside my door. It just doesn't need an explanation. Just that's just it. Or we can say that there is something about the nature of this thing that doesn't call for an explanation in a similar way, although the analogy isn't perfect. So like an analytic truth, like A equals A, you're not going to ask for an explanation for that. Now, it's mm. obviously difficult to think of something like that in, in, in the concrete world, right? Because it's not an analytic truth. But then at least what we're saying is that th these are two views and we're thinking of the explanatory power it, on one view. So, so on one view, there's, there's just a rock that's self-explanatory. On the other view, we're saying, no, 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 it, it's something that's self-explanatory or something that doesn't require explanation. But in order for it to be that, it, it's not that nature. It's not, it's not a rock. It's something that is in a different category than these things around us that, you know, the natural world that does call for an explanation. So I, it might be a bit tricky, like in the sense that, well, well we look at a theory from the outside. Okay, well, it explains it. That one explains it. Fine. We're good. We're, we're, it's a stalemate. But then, I mean... In a sense, you could say that about like a solipsist versus an external world realist. Well, I mean, he explains everything. I mean, yeah. But look, here's, I mean, if, if what you're saying is on our theistic theory, the difference is we've got a thing, God, whose nature gives it the, I mean, just to, to be quick about it, the get out of jail free card. I don't mean anything offensive about it. It's, it's not any accusation of deception or anything like that. But like the reason why this is different from the other things is its nature. If I press further on that, isn't it really just that its nature is that it exists necessarily? I mean, and, and then now what we're talking about is just actually, it's just not a contingent proposition. I mean, I'm okay with necessary propositions, not having explanations. So like, that's fine. It's just that if, if all you mean, by its nature being special is that it's a necessarily existing thing, then I just don't see how that progresses dialectic anywhere because if what we're saying is the reason why there's something rather than nothing is because something exists necessarily, then you can't be a, an advantage in terms of explanation because aren't we just agreeing that necessary things don't have explanation? So positing another necessary thing can't help you in terms of explanation. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess we are Hold agreeing on to a that. second. Hold on a second, Abdurrahman. Yeah. Yeah. I think if we're agreeing on that, we've made progress as far as I'm concerned in the conversation, <laughs> because I don't think we I don't think we necessarily and no pun intended started there. We didn't, I don't think we started there. So I think 
we've made progress in in the conversation. That's just well, that's how nice. I look at I like it. I, mean, I like that idea. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, I think I think that is true, and that's why it's a great discussion. But then I yeah. I would disagree that. So I would think. First By the way, guys, we've been going for like three yeah, hours. Yeah. We're gonna finish up. Honestly, I think I think we need to set like a a, a twenty minute cap on it. Okay. I, yeah. I really gotta go soon. Yes. <laughs> twenty minutes is good. So what I want to say is that I'm not sure we mean the same thing by no explanation. That's that's first of all. I mean, so there might be a discussion to have there, but. Uh, because again, so if you say the same, if, if I say that A equals A has no explanation and, you know, the grass is green has no explanation. Well, we might mean the same thing by that. But then if, if, if I'm saying the grass is green has no explanation, you're going to give me this look that it's not going to be like, hey, we're both saying the same thing, period. Uh, and the grass and, is green is contingent, presumably. Yeah, but that's kind of the point. So that may, my, my, my point is that, well, in, 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 in the case of what you're positing as necessary, I am saying that, well, Again, back to the skeptical problem, because I think this is mostly an epistemic question. It's, it's well, what is it about a natural thing that is necessary that differentiates it from other things that are contingent? And can we say anything about a, like, you know, hypothetical, necessary, concrete thing about its nature that qualifies it to be this thing that doesn't require an explanation? It seems we can just from, like, even by just looking at, like, analytic truths, it seems like we can look at something and not need an explanation versus not just needing an explanation for something that's screaming out for an explanation. Well, I so, mean, but let's not mix up the, nest, the epistemic and the metaphysical again. I mean, yeah, yeah. I might look at a proof and understand it straight away, but that yeah, doesn't yeah. mean that, uh, you know, that my, my ability to see it quickly or something doesn't mean that it doesn't have a further explanation or doesn't need a further explanation. I mean, I, I don't know whether you're trying to disagree with this, but contingent things need explanations, necessary things don't. I mean, in that sense, and, and what I mean by explanation is strong PSR sense of like an entailment and something that necessitates it. You know, I mean, like, not, that's not that's not the view I hold to, but I mean, so I don't think it it, need, it needs to be an, an entailment relation, but I guess on on certain accounts you can like so I guess it just depends on how you hash out the entailment the sufficient the non-necessitating explanation, but I guess, so the point, so you are right, I might be, have been confusing the, the epistemic and the, and the metaphysical question, but then the reason for that is because I think we can look at the nature of the necessary concrete thing in different ways. So um, there is the, like, in the sense of like its nature as in, um, so you have like what divine simplicitous say, which we wouldn't commit to, right? So the idea that the nature is identical to, I, I, I don't, think that makes much sense. I think there's some plausibility to some ideas within the divine simplicity conception. But then uh, then there's going to be the other aspect that you described. So there's just like the, I mean, I guess the logical truth of it in the sense like that that it, part of its nature is to be a necessary existent. And that's not going to tell us anything about anything else. But I, so I guess it, there, there are two aspects to it. So Proust in, in, in his new cosmological argument, he says, I mean, in the very beginning, he says that um, he talks about uh, um, there is something that that we want to prove that there is something that is like uh, necessity and its necessity can be shown through an ontological argument, even if we're not up for to, you know, proposing it in the sense that there is an ontological uh, account for its necessity uh, that explains its necessary nature. Uh, but uh, from from my point of view, at this point, 
it makes sense to 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 bring the discussion to the, that stage two. Of course, we're not going to go there in twenty minutes, but then and talk about stuff like what what uh, um, you know uh, Rasmussen and, and Kuhn's talk about in terms of the no arbitrary limitation or bound unboundedness and. I don't think we can really separate. So there, there might be an overlap between the epistemic and the metaphysical question, but then I think it is relevant in the sense that if we are asking, if we, there is a dispute and we're asking, well, what is it that qualifies something to have necessary, I mean, necessary existence seems to be a huge deal. I mean, it doesn't seem to be, you know, something that we're going to experience in our everyday life. And it, it, there, there, I mean, I guess there's a strong intuition about that. So, uh, and that discussion can be had. So we can have questions about, you know, what is it that makes this thing, apart from the fact that it's necessary, what is it that makes this thing uh, uh, not require an explanation? And it seems to me that a, a, a if, if you're talking about brute contingency or a necessary natural thing, it seems like there's not going to be an account of that. It just seems like it's like, well, there's a, uh, there's a first thing that explains everything else. Fine, I agree with that. Now, are we going to say anything else? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think we can in, in, in the natural um, explanation. So I guess I guess that's where that's where I'm seeing this. You know, where we've reached here. Well, I think if so, it sounds to me like what you're trying to say is there's you want to. So I was saying previously that the the this, the relevant distinction between what has an explanation and what doesn't is what's necessary and what's contingent. It sounds to me like what you're saying is um, that it's actually something like what's natural and what's supernatural or something. Because even if I said, let's for argument's sake, posit some natural but necessarily existing, say, concrete object, like a rock or whatever, you're going to say, even though it's true that it necessarily exists, still, um, it's implausible to suppose that it doesn't have an explanation, right? Ah, uh, is that right? Yeah, but I think I think this is where the discussion goes to like so so you know the whole thing about like necessary in itself and necessary through another because yeah I mean you're right in the sense that well if 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 a concrete if a rock exists in every possible world well that that just makes it necessary but I guess I I guess I mean I'm talking about necessary in terms of like fundamentality and I don't want to make it you know ca causal in the sense that I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to confuse arguments, but then I guess, well, you could say, so assume, assume God exists in every possible world and in every possible world, God, you know, creates something, creates, let's say the same thing. He's like, necessarily he creates it. Well then, yeah, that, that thing is necessary. Um, but I, I, I think there is a distinction between uh, uh, being necessary yourself and necessary to another. Um, I wouldn't want, the concrete world to be necessary, so I would want to avoid that kind of modal collapse. But then I think I think there is really a difference. And so, like James Anderson, for example, if he if he thinks that you know mathematical truths and logical truths are necessary, um, clearly he me he he grounds them in in in, in a more fundamental uh, thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not both necessary. But I, so I guess it's just about like well the specific uh, uh, you know what the crucial aspect of necessity we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean look, this is why. It's helpful to be clear about exactly all of the things that we that we mean. I mean, so when I'm saying that something is uh, necessary, um, basically, um, 
I mean, so so maybe you can respond to him because it, it seems like this is the confusion. So he's saying, Abdul, the existence of the rock depends on God, which makes it contingent, not necessary. So this is where the I think part of like the confusion comes. Uh, I, I agree it's dependent, but like I guess in in, in modal terms, it's just if it, if it exists in every possible world, in modal terms, it's necessary. But like, am I going to commit to the idea that you know it's not dependent it can be necessary and dependent so i guess that's what we would mean by necessary through another maybe that's the that's actually what we're looking for in terms of a ultimate explanation we're not just looking for something that's merely necessary in the modal sense but a concrete foundation that basically uh, uh um is independent <laughs> because if it wasn't independent then I mean, back to square one. So I guess I guess that's that's the point. Independence yeah, I versus guess dependence. sounds different than what I think we were talking about a moment ago because I think we're just talking about a different subject now. Like that's true. Previously, what we're talking about is some con you know, humdrum contingent fact, like me having coffee or something. Right now, that contingent fact about me having coffee. Well, before it takes place, it's contingent. Right, it's both future and contingent, and then some. It might, and, and at some point, it becomes present. Right, it's no longer future, but it might be. And 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 you know, on this Aristotelian view, everything that's present is necessary as well, because like it's too late to do anything about it. Right, I am, I am having coffee now. It's too late to not have had coffee this morning or something. Five minutes before I drink the coffee, I can still throw it and pour it down the drain or something. It's still contingent. So things that are contingent in the future, but not everything that's future is contingent. And even me having coffee might still be future and necessary before it becomes present. I like some sequence of events, you know, it's falling out of the cup and into my mouth. And there's some like, you know, a couple of seconds, half a second, fraction of a second where nothing can stop me from drinking. I'm going to drink. It's too late for anything to intervene to stop it from happening. Mm -hmm. So I think that really, really rigorously, if what we mean by, sufficient reason is the point at which something tr transfers from being contingent to being I mean future contingent to being future necessary like what happens that makes something inevitable right well because that's the necessitating condition that's the thing that takes place it changes its modal status from contingent to necessary now if that's and that seems very very intuitive to be what a sufficient condition is Right, in temporal modal terms. But if that's what it is, then all necessary truths, like truths of mathematics or you know, eternal truths about beings that exist and stuff, there is no point in time where they ever become, they ever get necessitated. They don't, uh, that never happens. They never start off contingent and then become necessary. So yeah. there is but no- it, But it seems like you, you reach with Jake to the point that we're, so I, I guess it is, we're talking about many different topics here because it seems like you reach with Jake to the point that, well, okay, so let's talk about this, like, you know, fundamental necessary thing. And that like, you know, there is, um, let's say there must, there is something that's necessary, right? And so assume that like, you know, everything like deterministically follows from that necessity, um, then, then right, everything would be necessary but um, I guess when we're asking the, you know, grander question about like, you know, uh, accounting for the necessity of that, you, you, you could take it as a whole and account for the necessity of everything. But I guess the point is whatever does account for the existence of contingent things, that 
is what we're focusing on. And that's what we're, that's what I think. I mean, you, that we can say, I, I think we're just, I think the, the agnostic or the atheist position. And sometimes I think it stops too early. Cause I think there's some things that more things that we can say about what would make something necessary. Well, there's more things you can say. The question is whether that makes any explanatory difference, whether you say them or not. Like, so let's suppose I say, uh, that it's necessary that there is something on my view, right? But that it's there's no explanation of, of anything else. You can't say anything more about that. And you go, aha, on our view, we can say a bit more than that because not only is it necessary that, sorry, that there is something, but say you agree with that, um, but that there's a reason why. And the reason is because God made all of the stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But So you can say more about it. But the question is, does it actually do anything to say that? Um, yeah, and I, I think it does. Though. What advantage it gives? I think it does because I think I think you said in the past that I mean you see the intuition beyond positing something like let's say uh, you know unboundedness or limitlessness for necessary things that there seems like there is an intuition there and that we we find that in science too among physicists when they talk about ultimate explanations and and, and stuff like that and you know unwanted like arbitrary variables in 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 in, in, in some models and so I, I think. So I think in that sense, well, if there is that intuition, well, then I guess there is something we can say that adds uh, ex- explanatory so power. What, Not, how yeah. is that explanatory power? That just means that what you're saying is that like the extra thing that I add to the explanatory story also satisfies an intuition that I've got. That's not the same as explaining more things. Um, so I guess it wouldn't explain more saying... So if you look... So again, this. so what I said earlier is if you look at the theories from the outside, yeah, so so this explains the data that explains the data i guess right now i'm talking about given other considerations which is more like of a like stage two consideration uh, yeah like, okay so what, we're talking about yeah. other explanatory version yeah that yeah so yeah that's what I, I said stage two yeah yeah well here's a here's an uh, or, uh here's a theoretical virtue uh ontological simplicity you're positing an additional entity so so you i mean okay yeah. you're saying it satisfies an intuition that you've got about like maximality and limits or something but it contravenes this like otherwise rational principle we shouldn't add entities if we can get away without them so you're paying a cost for that i mean yeah if if the cost was equal to the gain that it gave you then there would be no benefit to doing it and it seems to me that the cost massively outweighs the benefit that you get i mean the intuition is flaky as hell but the ontological cost is massive like you're positing um a necessary concrete being whereas i'm not so obviously there's a big ontological cost there that's not disputable. And, but the value of satisfying some intuition you have in metaphysics is very, very dubious, it seems to me. So yeah. I mean, at best they match, in which case it's not an advantage, but actually they don't match. It's just a cost that doesn't pay for itself. So I think you're losing still on this. Yeah, so I, I don't, I don't not, think there's, a, I don't think, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's a flaky intuition, to be honest, because again, so if you, if, so 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 what you're saying is that there is an ontological far, co- cost but then i and before going to the ontological cost and talking about simplicity because what what's what the simplicity is going to assume simplicity only matters as like a tiebreaker all other things equal so like let's assume for example that that um uh you know i have a theory that explains diversity in nature it, in terms of explanation it explains it just as well as like evolutionary theory does and it'll say it posits less. Uh, so obviously, there's so there's there's more of like a, a quantitative uh, simplicity here. But then, assuming it's simpler, 
that that doesn't that means nothing so far considering the evidence. And I guess when you look at the broader picture, I mean, everything we said about the PSR and explanation and the nature of the contingent world and natural world and what does call for an explanation does uh, give serious merit to the idea that we need to uh, um, that we can utilize this these. Uh, uh, um, you know, a priori notions about the way the world works to say something about the ultimate nature of reality that would get us out of, you know, uh, uh, certain uh, uh, skeptical, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, arguments on the one hand, and that would ontologically, presuming we're right, account for necessity on the other. And uh, so I don't think that's just a, a flaky intuition. I think it's, it's, so I think it's, a, so I could say it's a flaky intuition that we think that causality operates the way it does in the external world. And while you can appeal to your intuition, but then obviously, I mean, like the solipsist or somebody who doesn't believe in external world realism is going to be like, well, that's a flaky intuition. And I, as let's say an idealist or a solipsist, I'm I'm explaining everything you explain. And if, if if we take like, you know, the skepticism like about external world realism that's been dominating uh, um, uh, philosophy for 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 a long time seriously, then I think it's really worth taking seriously the possibility that our intuitions about the external world are are flaky. But if, if that's the case, then then I think we we fall into a problem of skepticism that we don't really want to fall into. The sense that I want to say I have empirical knowledge of the world. I want to say that things don't just happen. You know. For, for no reason that there could be just this red ball that exists eternally for no reason i want to say that our intuitions although fallible uh given the reality that we kind of agree that we do have knowledge our intuition can play a good role in helping us distinguish between something that clearly screams out for an explanation and another that is more pl- a, pl- a more plausible candidate for fundamentality i guess that's that's the way that's the, just the way guys I'm guys it's like 20 minutes we i think <laughs> alex if you guys are fine with it i think we'll give you the last word and um yeah and it is kinda, half past 10 so kind of wrap it up because you did say you, you didn't want to be on till midnight and uh <laughs> yeah it, it's sorry, 10:30, sorry for, so um right. if you want you can give your final reply to um abdul and then maybe just you know, sort of closing remarks on the conversation and how you think it went. Um, so I guess, um, yeah, I guess I think with the, I'm still not really seeing, so I guess my, my, my position is something like this, that I still don't really see what the benefit is uh so picking the option that i was playing around with was you have a beginning of sequence of events each of which is contingent and everything contingent needs an explanation at least every individual contingent thing needs an explanation we play around with a strong psr but we avoid modal collapse because we suppose that the whole contingent series doesn't have any individual explanation. It just has the conjunction of each individual part as its explanation. And it seems to be a pretty good balance of things. Um, I, I mean, if you want to preserve as many things as you can out of these, you've got explanations for each individual 
contingent thing, um, I didn't really see the benefit that was to be got from positing a necessary being in the first place. I mean, on its face, it seems like it either does something contingent um, or it does something necessary. In either case, we're back to square one, really. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what difference makes. But then we've been talking a lot about this personal cause stuff. But then again, I, I don't, I don't think that that's very clear. It's not clear to me how that helps. I still think that in those cases, I can ask why the agent did A rather than B, and things like because I did or whatever just sound to me like a, no, no explanation at all. Um, so, so I'm still puzzling like what, why that, why I should buy that type of answer. I'm just, I'm just not seeing how it makes much difference. So I think generously it's it's a draw, frankly, between these two views. It's not like I think necessarily there is an infinite chain of you know, contingent things. I just I just don't see how there's a decisive consideration that tells in favor of, of uh, the alternative than, than that. So I, I think it's just kind of a stalemate there. Um, I think it's been a really fun conversation. I'm really glad that we had, uh, that we had this. Um, it's been really fun. You guys are both cool. Um, I think your show is cool. Um, you guys treat these things really well. Um, you, you normally have good, insightful things to say, and you're really like respectful and uh, you know polite and intelligent. So I think that you know it's been a pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, so. I guess thank my closing so remark is like, thank you very much. You know, thanks a lot. I mean, the pleasure is ours. I, um, I mean, I mean, I, I'm personally, uh, I personally have a lot of respect for you, and I follow your work, and I think the same about you. You engage with the arguments respectfully. You take them seriously, unlike a lot of people we see out there. Um, so, so I, I respect that, and I think it always really is going going to be a stalemate in the sense of like, like convincing one another. But I guess what what some of the benefits of of, of these discussions is that well maybe a lot of what you said like you know i can take home and like reconsider some stuff and you could do the same and really for the uh, 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 neutral observer if, if if that kind of person exists they can also uh, get something out of this so i um I, I i really appreciate you coming on and maybe we can talk i mean i guess i'll send you a message about the whole uh, mm -hmm. uh, um you know uh sorry libertarian choice thing because I think there's a lot to say there as well, and I forgot to say it about yeah, yeah, yeah. something that's clearly can account for this problem in the beginning. But yeah, we can we can uh, we can definitely talk again. Really appreciate you coming on. Sorry for taking all that time. And uh, and yeah, we'll talk soon. Jake, uh, your final words, and then close. It up. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually on the admin account now, so I can close it out. But uh, I just wanted to show a comment from Roger, who has been here. <laughs> three and a half hours and uh he's i've seen him commenting throughout and he said this was so good guys though we disagree about god's existence i uh, thought adventure podcast uh this was a great show so i agree i think that it was uh great insightful i think i i learned a lot of, about alex's views on some of these things and I think that some genuine progress was made in the discussion and uh, I really enjoyed it. So I want to thank Alex uh, for coming and, and joining us for this discussion and people in the chat are saying, maybe we need a part two. So that's definitely on the table from our sure. side in the future. Um, maybe. maybe we'll have another discussion. 
And um, yeah, with that being said, um, I'm going to close it out, guys. I'll hit the outro. I want to thank everybody for watching. And until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace, everyone.